podcast is recorded in front of an unwitting audience. This is True Crime Kent. Fuck the police. Yeah, sure. Until you need them, then it's more like, where's the police? You can't win. As the police, but as a cop. That depends on how you decide to police, and there are plenty of good cops policing in a way that's admirable. You got your shitheads, sure. The rotten hierarchy of some forces breed shit cops. But even then, down to the most corrupt and apathetic backwoods stations, then all the way up to, say, North Hollywood... You have men and women willing to die on any given day, on any given call, in exchange for realizing what every single one of them initially wanted to be, a hero. Recording has initiated. Hey, Kent. Hey, up. True crime. I haven't called you true crime in a while. Yeah, I know. It's been nice. Mm. To to each his own true crime. <laughs> just can't. Just just say, I mean, we've come so far since episode one. Just can't. But brand distribution at the same time. Brand awareness. What brand? Brand awareness. True crime can't. We. I want this to become where you... Everybody started calling it TCK, though. Yeah. That's well. They also call it HP. So you know, pick your pick your poisoned proverbs. <laughs> I think fair enough. Op. What are we doing today? Oh, today we. I don't know. I don't come with the stories. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to see what you would say. <laughs> I wanted to see. What you, <laughs> you scared me. There. I was trying to put you on the spot there, so that you'd have to. I was hoping you would have to dive into the my outline that you haven't looked at yet. I, I thought that for a second, you had <laughs> given me homework, and I was in the eleventh grade again. And I thought, oh crap, that homework thing bites me in the butt every day. Dang it! <laughs> so Jack brought us in. He did. He did. He, he <laughs> Short, sweet, to the Not. point. We got good cops. We got bad cops. <laughs> yeah, that thing. Yeah. I wonder if next time he'll start it with abortion. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying. I, I, pick, I sense a theme here. And you are right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you kill me. Hey, Op, you ever had to run from the cops? Yes. Yes, I did. Oh, I can't wait to hear this story. Well, okay. So here's the deal. So in my in my town, there's a very very large, like a very large grass hill with a very large house on top of it, and the the large house for decades was the mayor's house or the governor's okay. or the governor's house. I can't remember mayor or governor. This, this just so you know that this this story starting out sounds like you're going to make an attempt at an assassination. <laughs> Up on the hill. Uh, There's a large hill beside a political figure's <laughs> house. A grassy knoll, if you will. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. Yeah, maybe that's why they stopped using it as the mayor/governor's slash house. I can't remember which was the governor. I think it was governor. 
Yeah, there's no way they'd throw the mayor in there. <clears throat> anyway, what was weird about it was, just as a side side note to my story, now that I think about it, is this this grassy hill was, I'm, ki- I'm not kidding you, acres large, right? Acres. Many vantage points. Exactly. Did they have foliage? <laughs> no, that was, the th- that was one of the... So, yeah, it's a completely unobstructed view. From any point. And how much did your ghillie suit cost? <laughs> Twelve ninety-nine. How did you know? Uh, <laughs> um, no, what was weird is now that I think about it, you know, if it, it felt like the house that the governor of Whoville would be in, like, who puts their governor like up on top of a hill in a mansion, like? That seems like I pictured something completely different when you just said that. I thought his house was just poorly constructed and it had many <laughs> long rounded angles and it was sitting <laughs> cock sideways and there was an elephant in the front yard that was also oddly shaped and it was blue and pink. You should visit my state sometime. That's not too far <laughs> off. Oh, but what was weird is I always looked at it and I'm like, why would we, why would we, like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, politicians are always like, I'm like you. I'm just like you. Then we throw them in this house on top of it. Literally, the thing can look over the whole town. I am not a lizard. (laughs) And, and, anyway, so they stopped using it for that purpose, but... I was always mad about the fact that, like, acres of grass, right? Acres. Like, nothing to be used on. It's just, it's hill-like, so there's nothing you could do with it. Nothing, nothing. So there's always a riding lawnmower going on this thing, and I'm like, how much does that cost in tax dollars? If I'm serious, like, daily. Like, they're just mowing this big old monster. But when it wasn't being mowed at night, we would ice block down it. Have you ever heard of that? Is that where you ride a giant block of ice down it? (laughs) Yes. Which is something that I thought they just did in like the 20s. I know that where do you even get a giant block of ice? Well, see here's the thing. So two things. One, right? Like the 20s would have been where you would have had a governor's house on a hill. And then I'm also ice blocking. I also had one of those fun toys, which was just a big circle, and you hit it with a stick, and you run down the road with it. Yeah, just stick balls. Yeah, that's the, what they call stick, yeah, yeah, stick yeah. circle. <laughs> we, we wouldn't buy the ice blocks. What you do is you take, like, a Rubbermaid bin, you fill it with ice, and then you put a rope through the water. But, you know, you don't fill it with ice. You fill it with water. And then you f- put a rope through the water, and you hang that rope out on both ends, and then you put it in your freezer and let it freeze. And then you got handles... When it freezes, and you pop it out of the Rubbermaid thing, and then we all go to the hill. It, the odd thing is this: is once again, I'm starting to see how bucolic my uh, my childhood might have been because we all drove to this hill. It wasn't like we were like small children. <laughs> we we all had. Well, that's not the only odd thing here. The most odd thing here is that you were probably the least inbred person that I know, but. <laughs> It seems that you were doing the most inbred activities uh, growing up. The only thing more inbred that I can think of that I did as a kid was catch June bugs. Oh, I did that too. And then tie string to one of their legs and let them fly around like a cot. <laughs> and you would, we did that a lot whenever I was a kid. But uh, yeah, continue on your story. I'm sorry. So you're 23, 24 years old. You've got your ice block in the back seat. So we would take dates and stuff and we would go ice block and just zip down this hill and in a way it felt like we were like ha ha governor take that you big old rich guy on the hill that's how we're gonna do with your hill (laughs) 
And but it was illegal. Which you'll probably take a million times over getting shot in the face while he's trying to make a toaster strudel in his kitchen. True. So, but it was illegal. So you know the cops would show up and you'd have to scramble. Well, this one time, I'm with. What are even the charges? Evading evasion with ice, maybe block party. I don't know because I never got caught. But this one time the cops showed up, but I was with a bunch of friends and the cop was the dad of one of my friends. So at first we were like, oh, we got to get out of here. Here comes the fuzz. And then we realized it was his dad. So he let us all take pictures getting arrested like fake, you know, like on the cop car, hands cuffed and everything. You know, he was like, he was like, hey, now you now you guys, you guys stand on that. OK, now, now cavity search. Let's get some pictures of cavity search. That'd be funny. <clears throat> oh, wow. You got so got molested anyways. Um they did cavity searches up? They, huh? I'm sorry, continue. That was basically it. Just, we got that. Oh, you didn't even run from the cops then? Well, we, we kind of did. We were like, hey, it's, hey, it's the cops. Oh, it's your dad. You did like the white kid. That's, that's very, that's a very white kid way to, oh, you got me. And then they're like, ah, oh, come here, you little sport. Then they punch you on the shoulder. I kind of feel in the end, we, we all got got. I feel like we got got anyway. But she didn't put forth a lot of effort in actually running, right? No, there was not a lot of resistance. You know, when things got weird, we're still like, well, it's a cop. What are you going to (laughs) do? This is protocol. So I never realized that 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 story, I probably should go talk to somebody about that story. Yeah, if they're doing cavity searches. Yeah. He thought it was fun. We thought it was funny. I, it was also any day. How old were you at the time? Oh, not too old, but what? You just said that you drove there, so I'm... Yeah, I did. I know that the legal driving age is 16. Yeah, shoot. Walk it off. Walk it off. I'm looking at your face while you're telling... And there's like a certain level of pain behind your eyes. It feels like we just accidentally dug something up there. <laughs> Seems like that's the only way it comes up with, with me is I'm, I'm like, nothing ever happened. And then a bother. <laughs> and then it's all, who thought, who who knew that, who saw that coming? Not me. Ever. Not me. Anyway, did you ever run from the cops? <laughs> a couple times, but uh, a time that stands out in my mind, whenever I was... Uh, a teenager, we went to a party one time in a, in a house that I was unfamiliar with out in the country and uh, and we were all underage and drinking and the police showed up there was probably like 40 people in this little country house out in the middle of nowhere so as the police are coming in the front door me and Two of my friends are going out the back, and we were drunk. Well, you would think that a police, the police, or maybe they knew that's what we were going to do, and they yeah. were just letting us, you know, let these kids, let them have a fun story to tell on a podcast 15 years from now. They make a little bit of rickety racket out front, and... Yeah, they got one over on the cops. Yeah. Ah, those kids. So, but but where we were it was like 2 in the morning. Where we were drunk, me and my buddy Decker, who you see post on the Facebook quite a bit. We uh, 
we ran out the back door. We just kept running, kind of like Forrest Gump. You know that scene when he runs out of the house and he just keeps... We just... And I don't know why. To this day, I don't know why. We were just drunk, I guess. But we just ran into the woods. And we ran, and we ran, and we ran like we had... Like we thought they were going to get the dogs out <laughs> for a, uh, because they were busting a party. Yeah. Like they're going <laughs> to... Right. It's the worst crime ever. We honestly could have just went out back probably and sat in the yard <laughs> and waited for them to leave. The cops come out. So, and they're like, you guys seen those kids that were inside the house partying? And you're like, no, no, officer, we didn't. <laughs> well, by the time we stopped running, we were out of breath. We were really drunk. And we were in the middle of the woods in pitch blackness. No idea where we were at. So we just kept walking. And at one point, I remember something got a hold of us, both of us, and we started screaming. And something was just hitting us in the gut and the ass. What? Just like something had grabbed a hold of us and was just punching us in the stomach and in the ass. And we were both yelling and screaming. And we started crawling away. And what we had done was stumbled upon an electric fence for cattle. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I was like, that attack That attack process is very specific. <laughs> now it makes sense. Okay. That's, that's how I always describe. Have you ever got caught up in an electric fence? Funny you should say that. Like two weeks ago, I'm at my in-law's house, and they have a big farm. And he's got this. Have you ever seen the, the electric fence stuff? That's It's like a ribbon Instead of just a piece of metal, it's like the the, the electrified wire yes. is woven in the white. Yes, that's fancy electric fences. Yeah. So he's got that, but uh, a tree had come down, so it, it tore the ribbon at one point. So I walked out to the in the field with him, and he's doing a he's got the little tester. He's like, huh? Eh, eh, no, that's, yeah, I think we still got a problem right here. And I saw the big tear. So I was like, I'm just going to tie it off right here. So I grabbed it, and I tied it. And the moment I like pulled it tight, like a you know, like you would with your shoelace. Yeah, it completed the circuit. Completed the circuit, and I was like, boom, 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 because it comes in pulses, right? It's yeah, hurt, hurt bad. So that's the first time you ever got hit. Well, that I recall, I probably got electrocuted four or five hundred times growing <laughs> up. But I grew up on a cattle farm, so that was like me and my cousin. The past time, just in case you were wondering how hillbilly my upbringing was we used to take grass and set it on the electric fence and it would shock you a little bit right. and that was <laughs> that was fun <laughs> that was fun yeah not much but uh, just a little bit but uh, and i don't know how many times i've got caught up in electric fences but at first i was very confused <laughs> in this particular case because it was unexpected first off i didn't see the fence i didn't know there was a fence there it was pitch black we were in the middle of the woods i was drunk and it was two in the morning yeah so you were, your initial thought, because of how getting shocked by an electric fence for cattle feels, it the best way to describe it is you're getting kicked in the ass. Like somebody is just kicking you in the ass. Yes, that is. That's so. Imagine like the image of somebody tying a ribbon together in front of them and then wanting to be a strong man and tighten it, you know. So I was making this like circle in front of me with my arms and then I pulled it tight. Yeah. And so it was like my arms were like, oh, your arms lead directly to your heart. And that's where yeah. it originated. It was like somebody booted me right in the chesticle. Just gunk, gunk. So it's a confusing, yeah. odd feeling even when you 
know what the source is. Yes. Yes. Even when you're like, I just grabbed an electric fence. <laughs> That's what's happening to me right now. So imagine that feeling randomly. <laughs> imagine you're just at Walmart in the <laughs> deli meat section, right? And that feeling comes over you. You're going to be so confused. Yes. You're going to think somebody has, somebody has, an invisible man is beating my ass right here in the deli meat section at Walmart. That's what a heart attack feels like. Okay, but at this point in time, we're young bucks. You know, we're healthy, we're strong. A heart attack is the last thing on our mind. That's a very good point. So what we think is some ninja <laughs> that has just been waiting out here in the woods for whatever reason in the middle of Rockcastle County, Kentucky, population 11, eight of them are on meth. So some messed up ninja is waiting in the trees out yeah. in the middle of the woods just to pounce on two young men and start kicking their ass because we were so fucking confused. We had no idea what was going on. We just knew that somebody started beating our ass and we couldn't see them because it was pitch black. That's awesome. Yeah. It took us a minute to realize what had happened. We had got wrapped up in an electric fence. We got our phones out and started looking. What, what was it? What, what was that? <laughs> you know, and then we found, oh, it was an electric fence. We've stumbled upon some farmer's land here there you go and then we walked all night i ended up tearing the crotch out of my blue jeans on purpose and getting chafed on my thighs mm. and we eventually came out on the interstate at like 11 o'clock that next morning it was hot i remember it was hot so i we had both went through drunk and then sobering up and then hangover all on this walk Came out on the interstate. So we came out on the interstate, and my buddy Decker, he called one of his friends, and he came he picked us up on the interstate. But we later did the math, and we had walked like four miles wow. through the woods <laughs> from where the party started. And then we went back to my buddy's house and crashed and slept for like two days. And that's that's one of the times that, that I ran from the police. And the reason we bring up these these personal stories is because today is about two men that weren't very good at running from the police worse at it even than you were yeah. i would argue wow that's impressive because they didn't just run they figured they would instead of just taking an egress route right which is the smart thing to do if you're trying to get away they were going to blast their way out now you probably heard of this story everybody has it's, it's a big one it's called the north hollywood shootout oh yeah yeah i've seen video this is crazy so it's uh, basically two juggernauts heavily armored juggernauts with an insane amount of firepower Giving the LAPD an ass whooping for for about forty four minutes actually, and to this day, and up until this point, there had never been anything like this in American history. So, nothing like this has happened since. Nothing like this had happened up until that point. It's uh, I, I don't know if you play the game Call of Duty, but there's a care package that you can get in that game on multiplayer called the Juggernaut. Yes, and the character you're in essentially becomes indestructible. Yes. That's what these two men were at, the, at that point in time because of a combination of drugs, body armor that was made, homemade, and the weapons that they chose to carry. So the two guys that we're talking about today uh, go by the name, or uh, well, they went, by the name Larry Phillips Jr. Both of them? <laughs> no. That would also confuse the police. No, this other guy's name always, I have to look at it to pronounce it and emil matsuranu so let's do a little dive into their into their backstories before we get into their their more high profile shenanigans okay now larry eugene phillips jr was born on september 20th 1970 under the assumed name larry warfell 
to Larry Phillips Sr. and Dorothy Clay. Now, it was an assumed name because his father was wanted by the police at the time for escaping a Colorado State mental hospital on mm. April 9th, 1969, the year prior. He was born in an under-assumed name, uh, kind of like The Rock, uh, because when The Rock was a baby, they didn't, they didn't call He wasn't the pebble. <laughs> he was... He was born as Dwayne Johnson, and then he grew up to become the uh, a rock, oh, the rock, the rock, I see. the rock. Okay. So Larry's little Larry Warfail, which is also a funny name for a baby. I think Larry. You ever think about that? Like, can you imagine a toddler by the name of Larry? Like, hey, Larry. That just when you hear Larry, you think of an older person. Yeah. Well, and and uh, you always think. Like there's always the 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 version of your name with a Y at the end, like Sammy or Bobby or Billy, Larry is still an adult name anyway, because it's Lawrence, right? That would be so. That's even that's more of a drubbing for a kid. So you just gave him no outs. Well, so this poor little bastard was, I guess he wasn't technically a bastard, but he, he was born during a time when his dad was wanted by police because his dad had escaped a mental institution the year prior. Huh. So he's, he's off to a rough start, well, one would argue, right from the get-go. Now, maybe you're wondering, what kind of guy was Larry's dad? Are you wondering that, Op? Say yes. Yeah, you're wondering. That. I was about to say, what kind of guy is Lawrence's dad? It's funny you ask that, because in 1967, when Larry's dad was 19 years old, Larry Phillips Sr. was jailed for grave desecration. Now, perhaps you're wondering now, Op, what in the actual heck... Perhaps it was a misunderstanding. What in the actual? What in the heck? What in the heck in heck? Uh, no, it wasn't a misunderstanding. He had done it as a prank. This guy doesn't understand pranks very well. I felt the prank was that he would dig up a grave and remove the head of a corpse. Normal teenage shenanigans. Whoa, just stuff that we all did. We dig up headless. We dig up corpses and cut their heads off for a laugh and and make ice blocks and slide down the governor's grassy knoll. And then not run from the cops, but say we did later on a podcast and just stuff like that. Just fun stuff. Yeah. All the all that just all sounds like kid shenanigans. Did you say nineteen seventy four? No, this was in nineteen sixty seven. Weird. Why? Because I could have sworn you said nineteen seventy four and I had a I had a I had a I, I thought this would line up with a political a news bit from 1974 that I find extremely interesting, but it's not 1974, so I won't say it. Now, Larry Phillips Jr., our soon our our eventual member of the North Hollywood Shootout, was born September 20th, 1970. But his dad in 1974 they, they experimented with an aluminum scent, aluminum penny. Okay, good stuff. But his dad. Uh. It was amazing. Did this in 1967, three years prior. So his dad was 22 years old when he mm. when he when he birthed when he shot little Larry Phillips Jr. out of the tip of his member into his uh, mother, and then and then impregnated her with his seed, and the seed that well, the seed swam quickly nah, to the egg. It was a little heavily armored. I think that's how it, a little heavily armored sure that's not seed. That imp- that imp- like uh, most like look who's talking the inter- the entering credits to look who's talking it enters the egg storks or magic and, and fertilizes the egg and then that grows into a, a little person a little pink ah, human being I just I think it's that's a who bunch of hoo-ha. come for the stories stay for the sex ed that's fucking science 
So like I said, normal teenage shenanigans for, for Larry Sr. here. Uh, he was in jail for about a year for this little for this little prank. I just not a good prank. Who's who are you pranking? The guy that you're pranking is like been dead for fifty years. He was in jail until nineteen sixty eight. When he was released, and uh, he wasn't out long for his grave desecration uh, before he, he robbed a gas station and went right back to jail. So this is the kind of man that birthed Larry Eugene Phillips Jr. No good. Now, growing up, he saw his father arrested many times. It was a pretty common occurrence. Larry Jr. starts developing a hatred for police because that's what happens in these cases. Uh, they, they always blame the police doing the arresting and not the person that's perpetrating the crimes. Mm-hmm. And that's not their fault. That's a young person misunderstanding the situation. If I went out tonight and decided to act a fool and and got arrested and they were like, hey, you can post bail tomorrow for 50 bucks. And my mom had a million dollars to her name. <laughs> my mom would be like, he did what? Yeah. Now, let his ass sit in there. Yeah. Until his court date. That's exactly what she would say. And I respect that about her. I love that about her. I love my mom. I will say this, too. I think a sign of good parenting is when you do something wrong and you did it intentionally that you know you did something wrong. You know, it's like there's a swath of society where the criminal doesn't think the criminal's a criminal, too. You know, I mean, nobody thinks this kid's a criminal. X, Y, Z parents you know whoever that's what this that's what that's what this kid's up up against here in this story because he's he's got a criminal for a dad crazy criminal too you know that being said just touch on this real quick that that doesn't mean that the police should have they, they're not judge jury and executioner so no matter the severity unless it's like they catch a pedophile i don't really care if they put a bullet in that guy's head out on the street and let him bleed out but anything aside from that um, uh, everybody should get their day in court. I agree. And I've said it before. If you teach your children that the police are just a law collector, they're there to collect you. They don't, they're not there to determine your guilt. So the, you can either make their collection easy or hard. You look at a dog catcher. You know, they're going to get you. They're going to get you. It, just make it easy. Yeah. That's not your... There's never a point where... A police officer has a warrant or suspicion or anything like that where you're going to explain to them what's up and they're going to be like, oh, okay, all right, never mind this warrant from this this judge may just, I'm just going to tear this up. No, they can't make that determination. Whenever I was a corrections officer, there would be instances where inmates would would want to scuffle with you. Yeah. And I always, I'll, I'll, I'll scuffle with you. That's fine if that's what you want to do. But I never understood it because it's like, I'm going to win. Right. One way or the other. You are not going to win this. Now, you might black my eye, bust my lip, but the problem is there's going to be five come in behind me. Yeah. Uh, Because I I treated all the inmates with respect, you treat me good, I'll treat you good. That's the way I worked. The chances are high that if you swing on me, five of these inmates are going to jump on you too. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm going to win. You may you may win the you may win the battle, but I will win the war. Yeah. So let's just not do this. And you look at a lot of criminals. I, I think that that's a, that's something that's not instilled in them. In a, a, a lot of the people we cover, even serial killers and criminals, that's something that's not instilled into them is a sufficient uh, level of understanding or respect for for law, and not uh, even more than just authorities, but law. You know, they, they, they know how to get around the law. 
that's where they spent their time. It's just all very, it's very frustrating. Op, and and I think people t- try to take a hard stance on on this side or that side, and I just think there's a whole lot of gray here. There's a ton of gray. There's a lot of gray. A ton of gray. Now on September twenty second, nineteen seventy six. Oh, weird. What? You just jumped right over seventy four. I figured sooner we got closer to that, you'd just at least recognize the aluminum. I had a date here for 74, but I decided to uh, hop over it. Aluminum penny, which is a groundbreaking step. Anyway. Groundbreaking. Good stuff. 76, I guess. Moving on. September 22nd, 1976. Larry's father is arrested by the feds in front of little six-year-old Larry Phillips. Uh, And they had been topped off by his mother, Dorothy. So she's probably, I don't know, probably trying to collect a bounty of some sort. Like, hey. I'm sleeping with the guy that you're looking for. Is mm. that bounty still active? Aha, creepy. So, interesting turn of events there. For whatever reason, this particular arrest is is when Larry really starts hating cops. Now, I don't know, maybe they roughed him up a bit unnecessarily. Um, there's a good chance of that. I don't know what, what the, the tipping point was at this, but this arrest is really when Larry starts really bringing on some hatred for the for the 5-0. Now, after his dad got out of jail many months later, his mother divorced Larry, uh, which I feel like is... I mean, that marriage is probably over. <laughs> it's hard to work on that. Did she ever get any money? I don't know. That could be a factor. It's a hard hurdle to overcross, though. I guarantee you not a lot of marriage counselors have had to jump that hurdle yeah. with a couple before. There's, I don't think that's a chapter in this counselor's book, like, when your spouse drops a dime on you. <laughs> For a dime. For a, d- For a dime, yeah. But they get a divorce. His mother packs up little Larry Jr. and, and takes him out to California, out there on the West Coast. Black gold. Texas tea. We did that. Did you see that? How quickly we just rolled right through that song. Good job. <laughs> and the best part of that movie with Jim Varney. And Diedrich Bader is whenever they're driving down the interstate and somebody flips them off and they go, that must be how they say hello around here. And then they're just <laughs> flipping everybody off going down the interstate with a smile on their face. Because they think that's how you say greetings in California. <laughs> and they're wrong. That's how you say greetings in New York City. It's half a peace sign. <laughs> now, even though Larry Sr. isn't living with little Larry Jr. anymore, he still he's, he stays he stays apart in his life. He doesn't bounce out like, you know, a lot of deadbeat dads. He's actually not even really a deadbeat dad. He's just a deadbeat human being. Yeah. Uh, he seemed, seemed like he was a good father. He cared about his son, and he does continue to play a role in his son's life. Now, he takes him out to shooting ranges, to wrestling matches, and to the Rocky Mountains to go camping. And it was during these trips in the Rocky Mountains, whenever it was just him and little Larry Jr., and you know, in a tent, hanging out, eating Moose's elbow or something. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever they're doing. But it was during these outings that his father would go on rants about how much he hated law enforcement and cops and how they're just the bane of his existence and they're terrible. Little Larry Jr. already had this hatred brewing on his own that he developed on his own, but then this man that he looked up to a lot, who was a criminal, is also piling on top. So I have a question for you really quick. Yes. The the way... way, Okay, so I, I would say this. I would say... There's a lot of people that have had really bad experiences with police, so they have a bad opinion of police. And I get that. I get that. I mean, my dad was one of those people. Okay. And it happens, right? I mean, whether they deserve it or not, you know, their interactions with police 
generate this perception or in his case you know that he's educated or tutored to believe such right yes is there anybody is there any group of people in your life where in the back of your head you're like that's unfair that i feel this way but that you just can't stand like you know it's it's illogical or like maybe a little bit unreasonable but you've kind of you know put a big red x over a whole group of people whether it's you know whether it's a I think that's called racism. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, never mind. Moving on. No. No, I mean like a like a gr- Okay, let me I'm sure there is. Let me think. Um it's a constant struggle that I have to constantly fight myself with because it's not a feeling that I want to have. Right. But And it wasn't a, a feeling that I had up until probably the last three years because it seems like the fast food service industry has taken such – It's the quality has dropped so drastically. I can't even remember the last time an order that I got was right. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like the, within the last three years, it's gotten so much worse because it didn't used to bother me. But I will regularly, and this is the truth, I will regularly order extra food whenever I go through somewhere because I know for a fact that not all the food that I paid for with money that I worked hard to get is going to be in that bag. I'd agree with that. My wife never gets her order right. It's, you know, it doesn't help that she has the care and I want to speak to your manager haircut either, but they never get her order right. And I'm like, you don't understand the monster you're creating, people. And I don't even order anything. Like, I don't care if it's got pickles or ketchup. Just put whatever you normally put on the sandwich. Right. I don't need, I don't have any special requests. I don't want... No ice in my Coke. Like, just give me a Coke however you make it. Give me a burger however you make it. Yeah. I do this intentionally because, A, I'm not picky. I'll eat whatever you put in the bag. I just want whatever I purchased to be in the fucking bag. Yeah, you're not getting really specific. I want a cheeseburger, light ice, no ice, non-fat with a high frap. You're not asking for that. Exactly, because when you start doing that, you brought it on yourself. You did. You get very specific. No, I'd agree with you. Also, the conundrum that they have right now is I drove by a sign. I drove by a sign at McDonald's and it says now hiring starting at $13 an hour. And I think about how dumb I was when I when I was at the age where I could start working in McDonald's. I'm going to pay me $13 an hour at that. Yeah. No, I remember. Well, I worked in fast food. I worked at Hardee's or Carl's Jr., I believe, as it's called on the West Coast. Yes, exactly. Uh, for a long time, and and I think I've made six dollars an hour, seven dollars an hour, something like that. Yeah, I believe. Which was, I think, a hundred percent appropriate. And I'm not thinking a social commentary here. I'm saying me at the age where I qualify to work at McDonald's, thirteen dollars is. You don't know who you're hiring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you you will rue the day you paid me $13 an hour. So I was like, wow. But they can't, they still can't even get them. You know, they can't, they can't get kids because the kids are lazy. And everybody that could actually qualify to work there is overqualified. Like, I don't get it. So I'll tell you who, uh, I agree with you on that though. I agree. The, the quality's gone down. The deli- I'm like, before you start chart- offering more money, how about you fix your system, you know? The fucking ice cream machine. Yeah, invest that money that you would have paid a new employee more money. Invest it in workflow. 
<laughs> or something. So here's and look, I'm not, I'm not. I want to, I want to elaborate. I, I don't hate. Like I think that that's a. If you get the job, I think that these people should be respected. I'm not saying that I disrespect them. I'm saying that I have to fight this urge to not get angry every time I deal with them. And it's not my fault. Do your job. Just do your job. Care a little bit. You're doing your part by ordering specifically off the menu, specifically, not over specifically, and then you're paying for it. <laughs> That's your job. And look, I understand that you you know, you know come in at rush hour. There's a 1,000 people in there. There's 200 cars in the drive-thru. If my order gets mixed up in that, it's like I get it. I'm a very understanding person, I feel like. But if I go through, there's nobody in the drive-thru. There's nobody in the lobby, and my order is still wrong, then that's on you, boo. That yeah, is on you. I agree. I totally agree. Okay, sorry. I totally detracted, distracted you, but I do have here's, – here's who I have an unreasonable – Who do you hate based solely on their skin color? I can't stand philosophy professors. Can't stand them. I'm just like – Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm with you a thousand percent on that. You are an empty suit, brother. Like how do – just I'll leave it there because that, that in, in where I come from, that, that's what we call alt belt buckle no rodeo. Yeah. Would you steal a loaf of bread to feed your family? <laughs> Look, man, if, if it ever gets, comes to that, the world's fucking ended anyway. So, like, philosophy is out the window. Philosophy professors get mad when you actually contend with them, which is actually, isn't that the point of the class? <laughs> and why do they use these, they always use these, uh, these like, situations like it, like it's Jerusalem in 1441. <laughs> Gorge, like, <laughs> yes, exactly. Let me sum up philosophy in one sentence this is all you need to know and you guys you and jack already touched on it just return the cart (laughs) return the cart cart. (laughs) put the shopping cart in the little shopping cart holder and show people that are probably making minimum wage a little bit of goddamn respect a plus in philosophy class You win. The end. The end. Good job. Larry Phillips Jr. drops out of school in the ninth grade in 1983, <laughs> ironically, to pursue a dream of making big money. <laughs> so that's a that's a negative and a positive, and we know that equals a negative. Yes. <laughs> if you know anything about math, a positive plus a negative always equals a negative. The negative here being the fact that he dropped out of school in the ninth grade. The positive, hey, he wants to make big money, but those two things don't add up. They don't. Most of the time, no. In 1984, he gets married. So a year later, he gets married to Sharon Santos. And it's at this time that he becomes obsessed with working out at Gold's Gym and get get rich quick schemes. Now, he wanted to be the next Arnold Schwarzenegger who was huge at the time, right? This is 84. I believe had Pumping Iron, had that came out yet good oh good question that what year did that come out um i can tell you which is a famous documentary uh covering the the kind of the competition between lou ferrigno and arnold schwarzenegger i actually watched it last night 1977 yes 70 so so pumping iron has been out at this point for seven years i would imagine they have probably seen that documentary it was huge it's still huge i love it even if you're not into bodybuilding or weightlifting um, it's a really interesting watch, seeing a young Arnold, how cocky and arrogant he was. Yeah. And then you've got this underdog, Lou Ferrigno, who is also deaf. What? Um, competing against him in the Mr. Olympia. What? Lou Ferrigno's deaf. What? You didn't know that? What? Look up interviews with him. That's the reason he talked like, yeah. What? Oh. Oh. 
I see. I see what's happening. I see what's happening here. So, hmm. like I said, he so he's into pumping iron, and <laughs> oh boy, he's into pumping iron, and 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 at the time you're you're giggling, your camera did its automatic <laughs> zoom thing right on your big white pearly teeth. Um, really enjoying yourself over there. He's into pumping iron and and get rich quick schemes. His favorite get rich quicker was a nineties. Late 80s, early 90s icon by the name of Tom Vu. Do you remember Tommy Vu? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. He was a famous scammer from the 90s, who an Asian fellow, actually uh, Viet- Vietnamese, who, who did get-rich-quick infomercials and seminars for real estate. Now, they were very harsh. It was like your mean, drunk uncle, <laughs> if he was Asian, trying to tell you to... It's like, you poor. <laughs> Why you poor, you fat piece of shit? <laughs> I rich. Look at all my money. And he always has these like really hot bikini clad ladies behind him like I get so much ass. You get no ass. You poor. <laughs> like and I know that it sounds really offensive, but this is what they sound like. And uh what what we're going to do right now is is insert one of these little um infomercials into into the podcast right now. The knowledge you will learn at my seminar will make you financially independent for the rest of your life. One of my recent transactions, I walked away with a check for $15,010.50. I took the Tom Vu Profit Seminar. It has worked for me. It has made me financially secure. You can do it too. You don't have to ask your boss for a raise anymore. You can give yourself the best raise of your life. Come to my seminar. Using the Tom Vu techniques, I bought this house, made $33,000. If I can apply the Tom Vu techniques and make $33,000 on this house, you can do it too. The money-making strategy taught at my seminar is a solution for those of you who work hard but are underpaid. Using the Tom Vu technique, one of the homes I recently bought made me $12,000. You don't need to be a genius to learn how to make a lot of money with my system. A lot of my students who are average people make a lot of money. Why not you? This is the house we just bought. It appraised for $98,000 and we were able to get it for 55. What this has done has given me confidence in myself that I know I have the ability to be able to do this. And he has confidence in me too. At first, I didn't feel that deals like this were possible, but we have the house and we have our $30,000 profit. And I certainly believe now. Do you see yourself a millionaire someday? Have some guts, make a decision, come to my seminar. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, Op, and, and we need to point out, you, you just heard, that that's one of the more kind of friendly ads that he did. Uh, I chose that one because it wasn't so long. A lot of them are 15, 20 minutes. Uh, but there are ones where he's literally like, you a poor. <laughs> you a poor. You lazy. That's amazing. That had everything in it. It had boobs. It had houses. It had Canada. Was Tension. In it? character development a semi-paralyzed gentleman uh, well not paralyzed his face seemed to be paralyzed though i did it you can too just just call his number so i actually did some research on mr tommy vu <clears throat> and one of the gentlemen in that commercial was actually his uh, his uh, brother-in-law was it the black gentleman uh no 
No, uh, it wasn't the black gentleman. It was the 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 white guy, and then another one that he uses. Almost all of them are employees. Really? <laughs> yes. That's awesome. You got to give it to the guy. That's like Wolf of Wall Street kind of stuff back then. You know, like nobody's doing it. He's pulling it. He's pulling it. He knows sex sells. You know, he's doing all the things. And I, and I'll give a quick breakdown of Tommy Vu. I did a. I went into a rabbit hole of Tommy Vu doing this research. And uh, he would do these seminars. What it was is the first seminar was free, which was just a, basically a sales pitch for the paid seminar, which would end up being for a week-long course about between – depending on the state that he was in, between twelve and $18,000. Wow. In 84? And, and – no, this was in the 90s. Okay. This was in okay. the 90s. Okay. Uh, late – early 90s, like 91, 92. But the – and the, basically the seminar was it all boiled down to buy foreclosed houses – Okay. Sell foreclosed houses at a profit. Now, the the, the big issue with this is uh, uh, an average Joe, it's very hard for an average Joe to find and purchase foreclosed houses. Mm-hmm. So what Tommy Vu would do would be use the students that he just had pay him between 12 and, and you know, many thousands of dollars. And he would have them find the foreclosed houses – and because most of them used all of their life savings to pay for this class, uh, he would pay them a finder's fee for finding this house for him to buy, and then he would make all the profit. No. So he was doubling his money off of these schmucks. That's brilliant. That's just, that's crazy. That's evil. <laughs> he was a multimillionaire, and Tom Vu now is famous, not famous, but he's a big poker player in Las Vegas. That's where he lives now, and he's still a shithead. Uh, still a crook, and now he just makes his money playing poker. I wonder if he's been on the poker, those poker TV shows. He has. He has. Yeah, if you watch poker on TV, I don't, but, uh, I mean, I saw several YouTube videos of him on those shows uh, playing poker. So so that's the kind of person that uh, Larry Phillips Jr. looked up to. Now, on September 2nd, 1989, Larry Phillips Jr. is caught stealing $400 worth of suits from a Sears store in Alhambra, California. Now, $400 worth of suits from a Sears? I would imagine that's at least 150 suits. I would imagine it's 400 suits. Yeah. <laughs> and what are you going to do with that many suits? Yeah. What are you even, what's the plan? What's, how are you going to turn this over for profit? Now, this same year at Gold's Gym, 1989, same year, he meets Emil Matasarano, who is the second man in the North Hollywood shootout. So they be, immediately become fast friends they bond over their love for bodybuilding and also the same year sharon santos also becomes pregnant so 89 is a busy year for for larry phillips jr in september of 1992 this is when larry gets busted on a real estate scam so he's moved up to bigger to bigger fish he's moved from stealing suits to real estate kind of following in his his idols footsteps tommy vu and here's how the scam worked up and it's not that elaborate not that smart actually pretty stupid but what phillips would do he would go to a surrounding county from his he, so he wouldn't shit in his woods in his own woods, right? He would, but he would buy a property under the alias of Mark Wright. But whenever he would go to look at this property with the real estate agent, mm-hmm. he would memorize the key lock box code. So you, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you've had to buy a house before. Whenever yeah. you go to view a house, there's a key box on the door that's got a lock on it, and you type in this code, it opens up, and then you get the key so you can go inside and view it. Right. So he would memorize this box code, then. He would buy that house, turn around, and put it on the market for sale, but make it look like it was for rent. 
So while this house is on the market trying to be sold, he is renting it out. And because he has the code box number for the key that's on the door, he can pop up at any moment he wants to and show the house to potential renters. Hang on. I am so confused. So he he would buy the house? He would buy the house. So he owns the house? He owns the house. And then he would put it up for rent? He would put it up for sale. Put it up for sale. But he would simultaneously put out ads that it was for rent. So because he has the lockbox number for the key, he's meeting people that are wanting to rent. They don't know that this house is for sale. It's not for rent. Mm-hmm. And the company that was renting it, that was selling the house, was called Remax. So he's got the lockbox number. He shows these people. Eventually, a couple is interested. Yeah, well, you know, we want to live here. And the the way he makes money off of this obviously isn't in rent monthly because this isn't a long term. You know, this isn't a long con. This is a short con. The money, the way he makes money off of this scheme is deposits. The upfront oh. deposits for rent. I see. So if if he can get five six people to come and look at this house, put in deposits. And then the house sells, and he walks away scot-free with a bunch of money in his pocket, right? And he scammed a bunch of people. Yeah. So what happens is he eventually gets two potential renters to show up. They look at the house. They say, yeah, they're interested. Later on that day, without Larry knowing, they show up to look at the house again. They're probably a young couple. And you know what this is like. Hey, we just got a house. You know, we're just married. I've only sucked his dick three or four times. What? Whatever. Whatever. You know, we're going to do so much dick sucking in this house. I'm going to I don't think that's how it. My fingers inside her. Whatever, whatever young couples say. They're like, oh, yeah, we're going to do it in that room. We're going to make babies in that room. That one right up there. That's where we're going to just paint the walls. It's not really part of the dream building experience. So they're probably sitting out front in front of this house. And what happens is there actually happens to be, at the time, Remax agents there. They uh, ask them what they're doing. And they say, yeah, you know, we just rented this house. We just put down a deposit. We're going to be living here. And they're like, "Uh, oh, what? Uh, What? And it's at this point. That the Remax, the Remax agents, the people that are selling the house, let them know that it's not that is not for rent; it is for sale. And at this point, the couple notify the police. Phillips is arrested, and his poor wife Sharon pulls out her life savings of ten thousand dollars to get him out of jail. This piece of shit, Larry Phillips, immediately leaves his family, bounces on his family the second he gets home. Uh, which means she lost her ten thousand dollars. She would not be getting that back. And he also had a a, a young child. At home at the time. So he goes into hiding, actually, because the police are now looking for him at Matasaranu's house, his buddy Emil from the from Gold's Gym. And it's here that they start planning robberies together. This is where the duos start dipping their toes into some serious crime. But before we get into those crimes, let's go into Emil a little bit. Emil. Not physically. Yeah. We're not going like, to go inside of let's him. not. Stay outside. We can do that like magic school bus style if you want. <laughs> Start at the anus. Probably find out what was wrong with him. Probably going to find a lot of protein powder <laughs> in there, I would imagine. Uh, so Emil Matasaranu was born in Tamasora, Romania on July 19th, 1966. Now, he was a fat kid growing up. And, and out of this duo, he's still the fat kid. If you look at the, the aerial footage shot that day from helicopters. Uh, he also had epilepsy growing up and always had headaches. So this is like a, a whirlwind for bullying. He's fat and he has epilepsy. So, you know, they're playing basketball and they get halfway down the court and they look and Montessorano's just seizing up and at half court. And he's also jiggling a lot because he's fat. I wonder if epilepsy, you know, because epilepsy is definitely a brain, a brain issue. I wonder if, if that contributes to his psychosis. At all. I don't know anything about epilepsy, so. I would almost guarantee, I mean, I would say that there's some kind of correlation there. 
Well, and you know, epilepsy can come on from a lot of different sources. So maybe, like, we don't know. Maybe he was dropped as a baby, and you know, this was just one one factor of his brain issues. Well, we'll learn later that Emil is a little bit. They're both actually, but they have no regard whatsoever for human life. Mm. So not it's not just cops; it's civilians as well. They will kill whoever they need to in order to get what they need. And also, some people speculate later on, many years later. Uh, after both of these men are, are decomposing in the ground, that uh, Emil may have been a serial killer as well. But I'm not going to go into that because there's no evidence to back that up whatsoever. So he's a fat kid. He's got epilepsy. In 1974. Hey, 1974? In 1974. What? Are you kidding me? <laughs> you just did that to... There's your cue. Oh, okay. Guess what? What? In now I've got to pretend like I didn't know you were going to do this. What? Op. Okay, I just want to. I just want to clarify. So we already talked about it a little bit, but I just want to say yeah. this was amazing, amazing in a lot of ways. They went away from the standard things that make coins like timeless and bulletproof, and all these things that the 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 alloys that they're using. And they cranked out an aluminum penny can you imagine anything easier to ruin than aluminum uh, actually this is one of the few coin facts that i find interesting and you're absolutely right can you also imagine how easy they were to lose because of how lot they had to be yeah exactly to lose and destroy right you leave your pennies out on the sidewalk <laughs> on, a, on a hot day on, on accident and come back and they're just Melt. a puddle of of t-1000 <laughs> Just, exactly. So I think that's what the T one thousand was made out of aluminum. So it was it was uh, it was a, an experiment that did go awry. But you also mentioned eighty four, which is also really interesting because the penny in nineteen eighty four was the first penny that that was that was produced using a brand new alloy, a new combination of the metals that had been in in research for nine years. They'd been developing this new alloy. For nine years, basically, it kind of turned everything upside down as far as the the alloy world in in currency for the American currency. So you know, it, it's a it's a rabbit hole, as you can tell. It's a rabbit hole. <laughs> Whew. And one that we are not going to go down. In uh, August of 1974, Emil Matsuranu's family moves to Los Angeles, and Emil is eight years old at the time. Now, it's in L.A. that the bullying really steps up because, let's face it, uh, nobody can bully like American kids can, probably. I, I don't right. know. I bet, when I think of bullying, I, I don't know why, but I think that maybe uh, English kids and Irish kids are probably really good at bullying, too. I think Italian kids, too. I can just see, like, on the playground, you hear all that, and then you hear, like, <laughs> I see. I can see that happening. When he moves to L.A., he's now getting bullied for a third reason. So it's not just the weight. It's not just the, the epilepsy. He now also sounds to everybody here like a Russian gun runner <laughs> uh, because he speaks like that. You know, uh, hello, I'm Emil Masarandu. <laughs> and I don't know that, I don't know what accent that was that I just did. He was a Russian gun runner. He just looks like he should always be wearing like an, uh, an Adidas jumpsuit with white stripes. <laughs> And a and a pair of sneakers. You want you, you want to you want take my lunch. And he should have like five Kalashnikovs. <laughs> so he sounds funny. He looks funny, and he acts funny because of the epilepsy. And because of this, he kind of becomes a recluse in his big new house in L.A. His family was seemingly uh, they never go into details, but they seem pretty well off. 
Uh, they weren't like millionaires or anything, but they were doing okay for themselves. They had a nice house in L.A. And because of the bullying, uh, Emil gets in, gets kind of reclusive and gets into computers. So that's something that he can get into from the comfort of his home without having to interact. And he gets really super into computers. But his parents do get divorced eventually. And uh, we, we will later find out this is where much of his anger kind of stems from is his parents' divorce. Now, in 1983, Emil will enroll at DeVry Institute of Technology for Computers. And it's there that he starts a three-year course in electronics engineering. Around this time, also in 1983, he purchases a, purchases a red 1983 Kawasaki GPZ 550 motorcycle that was modified by a friend of his, a local mechanic by the name of Kenny Perez. Now, he had difficulties in riding the bike, and he was always like left in the dust by his 1980s biker boys gang, uh, probably because he was fat and that was a lot of weight for that bike to be pulling around. It probably looked like an elephant riding a tricycle. I would, I would imagine. Yeah. It's a really ugly motorcycle. Uh, if you look at pictures of it, uh, all the motorcycles during this time were ugly. None of them had that like kind of aggressive. They all had long like seats and yeah. they set really dumb looking. And Banana But at the seats. time, it was a piece of like state-of-the-art machinery. Yep. Now, in 1987, Emil graduates from college with a degree in electronics. And it's also at this time that he starts getting into bodybuilding. So he's hanging out at Gold's Gym in California. And it's here at Gold's Gym that he meets Larry Phillips in 1989, and they start bonding over their mutual love of increasing their physical fitness. Um, so now we our two our two villains have met, and they're into bodybuilding. And it's also around this time in 1989 that he meets his wife Christina on a trip to Romania to retrieve his grandmother. So he's going to go get grandma and bring her back in one piece, like his whole grandma. He's bringing his entire grandma <laughs> he's back. He's not going to just bring her head. No, okay, good. Just one one whole piece of grandma. She's still alive at this point. But that was in 1993 that uh, that he goes to get his grandma, and he meets Christina, and they had their son soon after. So we are up to date now. It is 1993, and Larry Phillips is on the run. He's cram- he's camping out at Emil's house. 1993, Emil is uh, married. He- he's got a got a son on the way, and now they're together in this one little house. It's actually an apartment. And uh, this is where they start planning their heists, their, their robberies. And uh, on July 20th, 1993, Emil and Phillips pull off their first heist in Littleton, Colorado. Now, this is where they successfully armed an armored vehicle, and fortunately nobody was injured. I couldn't get the exacts on these armored vehicles on how much money they got away with uh, in total. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter how hard I looked. So, I, I don't know... I will have the numbers for the banks that they robbed, but as far as these armored cars, I would I would have to imagine probably uh, several, several thousands of dollars. How, how much would you imagine an armored vehicle <clears throat> is carrying at any given point? Well, I'm guessing, and I don't know armored vehicle uh, protocol, but I'm guessing if you've got an armored car, you're going to fill it with money for multiple destinations. So I'm guessing he's, it's probably, I mean, depending on how much they got out of the car, they could be in hundreds of thousands of dollars per hit you know so it could be between depending on where it's coming from mm. it could be on if they caught it coming or going yeah coming or right. going yeah it depends could be empty could be sort of empty could be completely full depending on what bank they're going to too because if they're just going to a credit union you know they're going to be throwing it a lot less money than if you're heading to the downtown bank of the universe you know well on october 23rd 1993 a few months later in Glendale, California, they are pulled over in a rented 
1992 red Ford Thunderbird for speeding. They both had Glock 17 9 millimeters, and they're also really fucking stupid because red is the most common car yeah. that you can get pulled over in, and this is the vehicle that they chose to pull off robberies. Is a red sports car. Yeah, it's not smart. Not smart. Although, although, uh, they didn't think this through, but imagine robbing a bank in a red sports car and wheeling away in a red sports car, and then somewhere just up the road, you swap it out for like a Reliant K, <laughs> you know? They, that's a good point. That's a good idea, but that's not what their plan they was. They didn't do that. Yeah, they're not that smart. That was not the plan. Uh, oh, and by the way, uh, let me go into some of the things that the police also find in this vehicle. You ready for this? Because this is almost satire worthy. I'm guessing they weren't. Yeah, I'm excited for this. Shoot. A Polytech semi-automatic rifle with a folding stock that belonged to Mazzarano. A Norinco Mac 90 semi-automatic rifle with a wooden stock that belonged to Phillips. Now, that's just a a, a Chinese version, really, of, a, of an AK-47. Semi-auto, A Springfield... Though, right, semi-auto. Semi-auto, okay. yeah. Right. A Springfield Armory forty-five pistol belonging to Phillips. A Colt forty-five pistol belonging to Mazzarano, which is basically just a... It's a 1911. Mm-hmm. 1,649 rounds of 7.62 by 39 millimeter ammunition. You heard me right. 1,649 rounds of AK ammo. That's AK ammo. Wow. Oof. Most of them... <laughs> were loaded into 30-round magazines, but three Chinese-made 75-round drum magazines were also loaded with 7.62. Jeez. They had 967 rounds of 9mm JHP ammo. Wow. They had 357 rounds of 45 JHP ammo. Hmm. They had six smoke bombs... Two improvised improvised explosive devices, so two homemade bombs, a gas mask, two sets of National Armor Level 3A vests, so bulletproof armor. They had two 200-channel portable programmable scanners with earpieces, sunglasses, gloves, wigs, ski masks, a stopwatch, Two spray cans of gray studio hair color, <laughs> and and three different California automobile license plates, and a total of one thousand six hundred twenty dollars in cash. Up until you said hair color, I thought this is definitely bank robber car, but you said hair color, and I'm like, I don't want to jump to a conclusion. That's when you started getting on their side a little bit. Well, like, maybe they weren't up to no yeah, good. Yeah, it could have been a disco that they were headed to. It could have been a costume party. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to withhold judgment until I see how this plays out. Just to be, just to be on Can the Can you side. imagine the palm sweat as you're driving this vehicle? <laughs> well, can you also imagine the shock absorbers? <laughs> I mean, this thing had to have been riding pretty low. A lot of weight. <laughs> That's a lot of. Uh, you said JHP ammo. Just just to clarify, JHP is jacketed hollow point. So th- th- this hollow is, points. Yes, is full of hollow points. Which which when they impact, they have a much more severe uh, amount of devastation that they do than just a regular. It's almost as if they're wanting to use this ammo to kill people. <laughs> Weird. Weird. 
It's a very lethal ammunition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get nervous if I'm driving down the road in my pickup truck and I've got an old beer can in the back. That's <laughs> that's empty and it's been in there for two weeks, right? I'm just at the house drinking, mowing my yard or whatever. Yeah. I throw a beer can in the back of my truck. I don't like that yeah. being in the back of my truck. I hear you. I hear you. I'd be. These guys have homemade bombs, gas masks, <laughs> and and enough enough ammo to supply a small army. <laughs> Now, uh, I read that it was possible that Phillips and Mazzarano were speeding because they were urgently on their way to a safe house that they had intended to store the the, uh, materials at. It's also possible they were speeding because their assholes were so puckered because they knew if they got pulled over, they would be screwed. On October 26, Phillips was charged for conspiracy to commit robbery, grand theft auto, unlawful weapons activity, Carrying a concealed and loaded firearm and perjury, and Mazzarano was charged with conspiracy to commit robbery, grand theft auto, unlawful weapons activity, and carrying a loaded firearm inside a vehicle. How much time do you think they got up? Oh, gosh. Um, this is in 1993. I'm going to say 20 years. Phillips gets 99 days in jail. What? <laughs> Emil gets 71 days in jail, and they both got a thir- got 36 days of probation. How? This, how? <laughs> this is in California. Yeah, you can't even have a you can't even have a thought about a gun or a hope or a dream about a gun without getting arrested there. I read somewhere that if you're in the if you're sleeping at night and you do have a dream that you're shooting a weapon, you wake up to SWAT <laughs> surrounding your bed. <laughs> They're real Nazis out there about citizens being able to citizens being able to protect themselves. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. I mean, you can do it. You can. Don't get me wrong. You can get a weapon there, but it's a hurdle. It's uh, harder to get a weapon in California actually than it is in Russia. So I think we can agree that these men should have been in jail for many years. Yeah, that just in prison for many years. And this is somebody that's a big proponent of the Second Amendment, as you are as well. But we can agree that these men should have been in prison for a very, very long time. Try to avoid snap judgments. But when I hear that, I'm like, that judge was corrupt. <laughs> That's all I can think. Because, like, yes. you know, what else? <laughs> he's the he's the one making the choice. He's the one making. Yeah, it's, that's wild. They're out of jail. And on July 14th, 1995, in L.A., California, at around 1225 p.m., the two robbed an armored car owned by Brinks. Now, they made their getaway in a dark blue Chevy Cavalier using automatic weapons, and they got in by shooting the car's rear door open to get the money. Unfortunately, this robbery also left a security guard by the name of Herman Dwight Cook dead. He was 51 years old. The car's driver, 53-year-old Felipe Cortez, was also injured. So they've now they're murderers as well. Yeah, see, and, and when it comes to these types of things, what I feel tragic is that like the, the security guards... Death, deaths in these kind of situations don't get the um, attention. Tragic deaths don't get the attention that they deserve. You know, like if this guy rolled, if these guys rolled into a grocery store and shot some people, we'd be talking about. You know, eh, it's sad. Security guards—they just seem like they're always in the way. Yeah, wrong place, yeah. wrong time. That's part of their job too. That's what's tragic. On May second, nineteen ninety-six. So almost a year later. They robbed their first bank, and they they choose the Bank of America in Van Nuys, California. They are in and out in eight minutes, and when this one bank op, this isn't counting the two armored vehicles that they've robbed, they walked away 
with $755,048. Three quarters of a million dollars. Now, I would have quit here. Yeah. Right? This this is retirement money. This leaves them each with, with almost $400,000. Right at $400,000 a piece. That's enough to buy a nice house and a nice vehicle. In Kentucky, anyway. Probably not L.A. You could get a, a small one-bedroom apartment and a, and a box spring. <laughs> um, and we're the dumbasses for living in, in the middle of the United States, right? <laughs> but in Kentucky, you could buy a fucking mansion and also... A Lamborghini Diablo. You <laughs> so, <laughs> on May 31st, 1996, at 10.05 a.m., they rob another bank, and in this one, they leave with $794,200. Jeez. So, at this point, they have made $1.5 million, and they've gotten away scot-free. That's amazing. Imagine the life they could have lived if they had just left it at this. And this is, we don't even know how much money they pulled out of the armored vehicles. If I had successfully robbed two armored vehicles and two banks and walked away with more than $1.5 million, (laughs) even though I had to split that in half, I am retiring. call it. I'm no longer, I'm not even going over the speed limit for the rest of my life. (laughs) Exactly. I'm moving to Ireland. I'm (laughs) buying a little piece of farmland in the middle of Ireland and just kissing my children and going fishing, I've maybe got a few cattle, and I'm going to the local pub that is in the middle of nowhere and just living my best life. That's what I'm doing. I, I hear you. All of that. Does the pub have root beer? I'm there. It does. Okay. It does have root beer because I'm a millionaire, and I'll, I'll have them put root beer right, in there. I'll see you there. Now, right after this robbery in, in late 1996, Emil's wife leaves him. And what I read, it was because of seizures, his seizures. But she she also takes their son, and I can imagine that it's probably uh, not just because seizures. I am uh, speculating here. This isn't in print anywhere, but it's not a long stretch to imagine that Emil was likely probably abusive, considering that we will later find out he was also a sociopath. All right, Op, so that brings us up to date to the big one. The big one. Not to date. We're still in. 1997, but to the to the date of the big one. February 28th, 1997. This is the day of the North Hollywood shootout and the basis for this episode. Now, it's the last Friday of the month and it's payday for many workers and the morning that the bank usually holds the most money. So, they're anticipating a big haul here, Mill and Larry. At least they did their research on that part, you know. Yeah, they actually did a, 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 a quite a extensive amount of research and we'll get into that in a minute but they do show up in a chevy celebrity that they had painted from blue to white and they show up at the bank of america at 6600 laurel canyon boulevard and this is uh once again in north hollywood california they park in the north parking lot now if you'll look at an aerial view of this of this bank it's, it's really hard to kind of describe it, and it's not, I guess, super important that you have a, a good understanding of the layout. But it's a large bank, uh, and there are parking lots to the right side and the left side of the bank. Okay. They park in the right side. Okay. Directly in front of the bank is a shopping center. So you, in front of the bank is, you know, you go across the street. There's a parking lot and then a shopping center that has 
it's not these stores, but it would look like you, you ever been to a a little shopping center where there's like a Lowe's and a Walmart and an Applebee's and like that kind yeah. of thing, you know? Yeah. It's like that. So that's directly across the street. After the parking lot to the right, there's another street. And and this street is a residential street. In terms of a layout, that's really all you need to understand. So there's a neighborhood close by even. There is a residential neighborhood behind actually this oh, bank. Uh, behind and to the right side, that's all residential neighborhood. Man. Okay. So, like I said, they show up in this Chevy Celebrity that had been blue at one point, but they spray-painted it white. Which, at least they didn't pick a red car or a fast-looking car, you know? I mean, there's... They, they do appear to have learned from their mistakes. <laughs> They're not in a in a cherry red Dodge Viper. Yeah. <laughs> With know? one ton of With... uh, ammunition and weapons. The old big windshield sticker that says, fresh out of jail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like I said, they park in this north parking lot, which uh, if you're standing in the bank looking out in, into the shopping center there, it's to the right. They pull up, and they pop Emil's epilepsy pills, which are phenobarbital. Oh. And they, they pop these to, to calm their nerves. It keeps them chill, uh, but it does slightly hinder focus. And uh, I looked these up, phenobarbital, and one of the side effects is constipation. And I'm thinking maybe they didn't pop these to keep themselves chill, calm, but instead to to stop them from pooping themselves. Yeah. The last thing you want to do in the middle of robbing a bank is make make a poop. At 9.17 a.m., Emil and Larry exit the vehicle, this white Chevy celebrity that they had spray-painted, with a whole lot of armor-piercing 7.62 rounds. Now, a lot of the videos and articles that you read keep saying that these rounds... They are armor piercing, but they keep saying that they're they're still coated, and I think that what they mean is still centered, mm-hmm. still yeah. cored, and all that means uh, to the listener that isn't um, up to date on their on their gun knowledge is it is a it's a copper jacketed round, mm-hmm. so you have a, a copper outside with a steel inside. So essentially, what happens? Is this this projectile makes impact on on whatever it hits, be it a car door, armor, or whatever, and then essentially a little steel needle. It's a rod. Yep. Punches through that copper jacket, and and kind of puts a focused, much stronger than lead impact on a on a specific area, and kind of punches through. Yeah. What whatever it is, and that's how an armor piercing round works, and that's why they're so much more effective. Than just your standard lead. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole lot of dynamics that go into those bullets, right? I mean, it's not just about bigger and heavier. It's it's impact. It's you know, it's what they do once they impact. So they park. They get their armor piercing rounds out. They're both heavily armored and wore ski masks with black sunglasses. They're wearing forty pounds of body armor each, and they had painstakingly. Uh, stitched all this armor together. So they had kind of made this Frankenstein suit, and it's scary looking yeah. if you look at, at pictures. But they had sti- they had spent weeks stitching this armor together, designed to cover much of their legs, arms, throat, chest, back, um, and, 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 dick and, and dick and balls. Well. Like some kind of like Mad Maxian Martha Stewart. <laughs> you know, this makes me think, uh, on my second deployment... Mm-hmm. They started making us wear what they called a, a combat diaper. 
Really? The reason that they developed this this two-part system was because a lot of the uh, IEDs that were going off underneath uh, Marines and soldiers' feet were taking their genitals. And that's a huge point of depression for a lot of males, right? You lose your genitals. Yeah. Like, what is the point? So the, they designed the system so that if you do you know, suffer a, an IED blast of some sort, the, the likelihood of your genitals surviving the blast are drastically increased. And this two-part system was composed of a set of Kevlar brief underwear. And you might be thinking to yourself, uh, wow, that sounds really uncomfortable in, in 110, 115-degree <laughs> um, summer heat in Afghanistan. And, and if you assume that, you would be right. Yes. You would be right. But they didn't stop there. No. They didn't stop there. Like I said, it's a two-part system. So you've got these brief, these very thick. They're like a half an inch thick brief underwear that goes on underneath your cami bottoms and then so you got your underwear and then your normal cami pants and then on top of that is the actual diaper and it was uh it was made out of the same thing that your flight jacket was made out of and it yeah and it and it was very thick and and bulky and it went it you wore it like a diaper and it was just kevlar plated it was a thick kevlar plated diaper and it was perfect. I don't know the likelihood of your your dick and balls surviving a blast wearing this thing. I, fortunate, I was fortunate in never having to step on an IED. But I do know that it was perfect for rubbing your the inside of your thighs absolutely raw <laughs> and making your downstairs mix up an absolute swamp. <laughs> what ended up happening was the first week or so... Uh, it was very emasculating because they would line us up before a patrol, and then a grown man mm-hmm. would check each of us to make sure we had our, our right underwear on. <laughs> and that was kind of emasculating. Yeah. <laughs> and then after that, everybody realized how terrible the system was and how it may have been super effective, but how uncomfortable and uncombat effective it made you in movement because of how hindering it was. And everybody just kind of said, fuck this thing for the most part, like a week into <laughs> into using it. So I don't know why it matters to me, but if I got blown to bits, I would still want my genitals to remain stuck to my pelvis. Even if I lost my legs and my belly button, I still want... There's something psychological there that's weird. So like I said, they're wearing 40 pounds of body armor each that they've Frankenstein together at their at their apartment. And we're going to find out soon that, that this is going to be extremely effective in stopping the, the standard police 9mm round. They had synchronized watches sewn into the back of their tactical gloves. They put a lot of work into this. Yeah. A whole lot of stitching. Now, they had also reconned the area and this bank in particular for months prior they had watched police patterns. They had watched employees. They knew who the assistant manager of the bank was. And they figured, by their math, they had about eight minutes before the cops responded to a robbery. That's that's how their math had added up. Now, how they came to that conclusion, um, we'll never know because neither of them, spoiler alert, neither of them survived this robbery. And, you know, now that I think about it, how do they even know that? Yeah, good point. I hadn't even... this. During recording, that hit me. There's so many articles, documentaries, and everything that say they they figured they had eight minutes. But how do you? Maybe there was. They might have written it down. Maybe that was set on their watch. Might have been. Was there paper? Any kind of a plan? Written plan? They did do a search of the apartment afterwards and found a whole bunch of stuff. So that may have been. Yeah, they they probably found notes. Yeah. 
That would be what I guess. So as they're going into the bank, at the ATMs outside of the bank, stands 32-year-old Armin Iskaldarian, who is depositing a measly $85. Larry Phillips, the smaller one of the group, that's another thing to, it's important to point out. This is kind of like Pinky and the Brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas the Brain is the little one, Larry Phillips. Mm-hmm. Larry Phillips was about 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, and then Emil was like 6'1", six, 6'2". Six, and also a big, beefy, like a, like we mentioned earlier, a fat boy. But at this point, he's put on a lot of muscle, too, right? So it's just a a barrel-chested behemoth, yeah. Emil. So it's it's like, and Emil was also kind of the dumb one. So it is, it's pinky in the brain. <laughs> so Larry Phillips, the smaller one, forces Armin Escaldarian into the bank at gunpoint with a pistol. Once he gets inside, he throws him on the floor. Inside the bank, Emil yells, everybody down. Motherfuckers get down before I kill your ass. And then they both start firing rounds, 762 rounds, into the walls and ceiling of the bank. Just to let everybody know that they're not messing around. Larry Phillips, at this point, yells, quote, This is a fucking holdup. Everybody down, motherfuckers. <laughs> and I don't know if he said it like that. Sound, probably something like it that. It sounded effective. But uh, everybody, everybody listens to uh, Larry's warning, and they do get down. Unfortunately... A 79-year-old lady by the name of Mildred Nolte was slow. I mean, she's probably slow in all aspects of her life, and she hasn't been laying belly down on the ground since her her days at the state fair with her boyfriend behind the latrine um, <laughs> back in, you know, 18. 1937 <laughs> with her poodle dress hocked up. But she's slow getting down, and because she's slow... Emil, the large goon, backhands her across the face and knocks her glasses and scarf off. And that's not you, you shouldn't hit old ladies uh, for the most part. And that's that's <laughs> for the most that's a stance part. <laughs> for the most part. And that's a stance that I stand uh, fairly strong on. <laughs> that this crime should have ended right, could have ended right there, and they just they did enough. They should have gone to jail for that. <laughs> Now, the assistant manager of this Bank of America at the time was a man by the name of John Villagrana. And because of their their reconning of the area, they knew who the assistant manager was. They knew who, the, who had the keys to the vault. Emil finds him crouching behind the registers. This is L.A., right? This isn't some town in Ohio where they're not super concerned about big heist robberies. So there's already fairly impressive security measures in place. There's a divider between the tellers and the customers. Uh, uh, bulletproof glass and mm -hmm. bulletproof doors. But Emil finds uh, John Villagrana, the assistant manager, crouched behind the registers and the desk and uh, just blasts through the door separating the employees from the patrons. This glass, this bulletproof door, was made to withstand 9mm rounds, small arms fire, yeah. not 7.62 AP rounds, right? Yeah. It's, it's no match for the weaponry that they've carried in. So I just 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 to paint a small picture here, when you start looking into guns and stuff like that and looking at, oh, what should I buy? And uh, one of the questions often when you cuz they're looking at like potentially if you're looking beyond like a handgun, you might be looking at an AR15 or something like that. And uh, so I've done a considerable amount of research on like the difference between an AR15 round and an AK47 and they had AKs, right? 
They did. 7628Ks yeah. and an AR-15 is a 5.56. Now, they also have, we'll get into their weapons here in a minute, but they do have 5.56 as well. Okay. Because so I was going to say the penetration uh, capabilities of the 7.62, as far as what I've seen, it far outpaces the 5.56. Um, oh, yes. Drastically. Like they were shooting into the, the car doors on a car and the 5.56 was passing, maybe passing through the first door. The 7.62 was passing all the way through the car. I mean, just... I, I don't even know that you would need uh, AP rounds in a 7.62 to pat, to penetrate both car doors. No, no, you wouldn't. And, and yeah, these guys weren't even using... This is devastating what, what they're bringing firepower-wise. Absolutely, yes. And, and this little door... They're thinking the most. This is California, where gun laws are probably it's probably the only place where gun laws are stricter than New York City, right? Yeah. So they're not thinking somebody's going to come in carrying this kind of shit. No. So this door is is no match for seven six two. It 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 pretty much just buckles underneath the weight of the seven six two, and and Emil gets in relatively easy. He he immediately makes his way to John Villagrana. And before saying anything, just butt strokes him with the with the buttstock of the of the AK. Oh. Gives him a good hey, how are you? In the mouth. And then Villagrina up up on this encouraging blow to the face. Uh, says, Yeah, let's go to the vault. Let's do that. You're right. We should go to the we vault. We should just now what Emil and Larry didn't know up, and this is gonna be devastational to their little plan here is that while they had been walking into the bank, they hadn't even made it into the bank yet, an LAPD black and white, which is just a, a an unmarked black and white cruiser, right, mm-hmm. Crown Vic, mm-hmm. had been driving by as they were walking into the bank. Officers Farrell and Perello had spotted them walking into the bank. And it's not hard. You don't have to be a mathematician or a CSI investigator to put on what's going on here when you see two men with AK-47s walking into a bank heavily armored in ski masks. It's early in the morning. They've probably still got fresh coffee in their belly. You know, it's like they're not even completely awake. They're thinking the most they're going to have to deal with is a a crackhead taking a piss in a flower pot in some residential area, you know. Let's work up to this. This seems more to me like a a, a 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon activity. Yeah, let's 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 let these guys get through this. We'll catch them down route somewhere. Let's get lunch in our belly first. Exactly. So officers, like I said, officers Farrell and Perello, they spot the two going in. They immediately know what's up. They park their black and white and issue a 211 alert, which is a police code for an armed robbery. And they uh, immediately call for assistance. This is kind of smart. They know that they have nine mils and they see that uh, these these bandits are carrying much heavier firepower uh, than they can they can respond with. So outside on the street, uh, the black and white is calling for backup, which Emil and Larry are unaware of. But inside the bank, things are getting a little bit spicy. What Emil and Larry didn't know is because of the string of recent robberies that the two had been pulling off, the bank had recently put in place new security measures that kind of drastically slowed down robberies, much like this one. And one of those measures was that instead of storing the money in one large vault, they broke down the money into into several s- small piles and stored them in multiple smaller quantities in many different lock boxes. Oh, to slow things down. To slow down things. So now, instead of getting into one lock box, you've got to get into a hundred small ones. 
I see. Yeah, that's kind of smart. Yeah, it's smart if you're not the one that's in there having to get the money out. <laughs> if you're not true. the poor bastard, if you're not John Villagrana, it's it's smart. Emil gets frustrated, A, because of this security measure, It's how long it's taking. He's constantly looking at his watch. He knows they got eight minutes. And B, because even with the, the, the sums of money in there, he knows there's not nearly as much money as what they had anticipated. And one of this one of these reasons is because also due to the recent string of bank robberies, the bank had switched up their drop off and pickup schedule. Oh, okay. So so uh, upon opening one of the lock boxes, Emil gets frustrated at the amount and and just fires a whole bunch of seven six two rounds into uh, into a couple thousand dollars, which is irresponsible uh, with money. That is, you know, makes you think he probably wasn't much of a saver. So Emil makes the assistant manager slowly start emptying lock boxes and putting the money in a black duffel bag, uh, while Larry Phillips is outside in the yacht lobby, continuing to yell, "Stay down! Don't look at us!" and controlling things while pointing his weapon at everybody, including the little old lady. Uh, that, that Emil had, had recently slapped across the face. By the end, by the time that, that Emil decided there's enough money in here or whatever had made him decide that we've got to get out of here, probably the time constraints that they had, they would have in the duffel bag $303,305. So a $300,000 haul, which puts their grand total at right at $2 million. Unfortunately, or I guess fortunately, that's nowhere near the $700,000 that the two were expecting. You know, they didn't get paid for their work like they were supposed to. Exactly. What Emil didn't know was that assistant manager John Villagrana had slipped in three blue dye packs with fake bills into this duffel bag. And six feet from the front door of the bank, these dye packs would explode without the, either of them knowing this was found post-mortem and had ruined a very large amount of the money. Now useless, useless money. Which makes me wonder if they ever accidentally gave die packed money to a real patron, you know, and they go to walk out and badonk. Just, <laughs> they're like, sorry, come back, come back, come back, come back here, please. Now, outside in the street, on the sidewalks, at the intersections, LAPD are everywhere. And you can look at look at an aerial diagram that's been drawn of where all the cops were. Op, if I, if I sit here and try to name all the police that showed up to this, it would be like trying to pay attention. It would be like trying to keep up with all the names in Game of Thrones. That's hard. That's very difficult. There were so many cops. It was like that scene in Terminator 2 Judgment Day when they get into into the, the Skynet building there and you know Arnold knocks out the window with the Gatlin gun. Yeah. It there were times two that many cops. <laughs> A sea of cops. It was like cops got there and then started splitting in half like worms and multiplying. <laughs> but they're also aware that these bandits are carrying high powered rifles. So they're maintaining a distance, an average distance of about 200 meters from the bank. So they're not like right up on the door or anything. They're at intersections. They're in the parking lot of the shopping center across the street. So they're maintaining a distance. Yeah, that's 600 feet. That's a significant distance. Like, I mean, I'm sure they noticed them, 
but that's a that's a pretty big perimeter. Yes, yes, and they've also all exit routes streetwise have also been covered by cruisers. So if you can imagine a massive perimeter around this bank on all streets, there's no way out. Essentially, is what I'm saying. Okay. Um, they've got it all all cut off. This would have been the most ultimately amazing story had they had the murder mobile armored. Oh, Killdozer. Yeah, this yeah. would have been the most amazing job had they had everything they have plus Killdozer. Yes. That, this would have just, it would have been the, I, I probably would still watch it today on TV. You're absolutely right. The problem is they have news helicopters and LAPD helicopters circling overhead. I'm pretty sure Killdozer could have taken down a helicopter somehow. But honestly, once the helicopter is there, give up. Yeah. Yeah, not a lot of places to go. You're done for. Once the helicopter shows up, it's over. I've seen a couple cases where somebody goes under an underpass and somehow magically disappears, but not very likely. Not a lot of... It's so rare that you find a black hole under an underpass. So LAPD are gathering outside. Emil starts rounding everybody up to put them in a vault. Uh, so he's he's putting all the hostages. They don't even really take hostages. But they load everybody in the bank, put them in the vault. And uh, it's at this point, while Emil is rounding everybody up, that Phillips looks outside and notices that the streets, which are usually hustling and bustling and vehicles are driving by, people on their way to do porn shoots or whatever happens in L.A. I don't. That's <laughs> what I imagine happens mostly in L.A. is just porn yeah. shoots. Yes. But... Uh, notices that the streets are empty and there's an eerie feeling about. He senses something fishy. And uh, he, he would be right. So let's do a gun breakdown here, Op. Okay. So Larry Phillips, the smaller goon, is carrying a Heckler & Koch G3 semi-automatic 7.62 rifle. Uh, pretty standard. Uh, it's, it's nothing really fancy. Not as scary as it sounds. Well, I guess it is as scary as it sounds. But uh, it, to the to the common listener, it probably sounds like a space rifle, right? It does. It looks pretty standard. It actually kind of looks World War II like. Yeah, yeah, it does you look know. very old school. It does. Semi-automatic though, which means that uh, it will fire around with every trigger pull. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to the listener, the difference between fully automatic and semi-automatic is fully automatic. You pull the trigger. And it fires multiple rounds. Uh, it fires until you release the trigger. Semi-automatic means that it will fire with every trigger pull. One bullet per pull. So you can hold that trigger in as long as you want. It's only going to fire one bullet. And if you've ever listened to the news and heard them say this weapon was a full semi-automatic. That, that, is, that is not a thing. That is not a thing. <laughs> it is firing, however, 7.62, which we have already discussed, is a pretty substantial round. And all of the 7.62 that they're carrying here is armor-piercing. Another gun that Phillips has is a Norinco Top 56 S1 semi-automatic rifle converted to fire fully automatic. So now we have a gun that has been illegally converted uh, from semi-automatic, which is uh, one trigger pull, one round, to fully automatic, pull the trigger, many, many boom-booms. And then Norinco, that that's kind of a... It, it looks it looks like an AK forty. Yeah, it's a Chinese variant of the AK forty seven. Yeah, yeah. Um, it also fires seven six two. That that seems to be their round of choice for the most part. Um, and 
They have 75 to 100 round drum magazines and 30 round box magazines. Really quick, I was just going to say, if people wonder why we keep saying 7.62 and why that, you know, obviously it's a significant round. But one thing I found, and this is just good to know, is when you're talking about different rounds for or a military style rifle, the round is often adopted by countries. That's yes. that's what makes that significant. Like the U.S. forces use a 5.56, right? Or, yeah, and 7.62. So, and 7.62. Yeah, so the M240 Bravo, which is what uh-huh. I carried, yeah. that, that that fires a 7.62. Okay. Yeah, so so countries pick around, basically, and they say this is – so there's universality and everything. Like Iran is 7.62, you know, um, depend, and there's other rounds out there. There's five, five, even 5.56 five, NATO, which is like all the NATO countries use the 5.56 five, NATO. So anyway, just so you know, that's why it's it's significant as far as which, which type of round because uh, – it, it is very significant, and and more so – Probably in this case in particular than any other case that you could possibly cover. Uh, Phillips is also carrying a Beretta Model 92FS 9mm semi-automatic pistol. Now, this is the exact same gun that police uh, were issued. So this is kind of his sidearm. This is a last stand kind of weapon, and he will get to it eventually. So that's what Phillips had. Now, the guns that Emil carried was also, he had a, a Norinco Top 56 S1. Semi-automatic route. Now, this is the the Chinese variant of the AK-47, right? Mm-hmm. He also had a Bushmaster XM-15 E2S Dissipator semi-automatic rifle, which is a big, long, fancy word for a for a, a an AR-15 5.56 variant. Now, the only difference in the Dissipator is um, the barrel was shortened four inches from the military version, and uh, it had a, a different front sight post. That's really the only the only difference. Yeah, this would have been, like, this is the full metal jacket platoon kind of looking gun. Yes. Yes, exactly. Very. And like I said, and like you said, it carries 5.56. Five, so mm-hmm. Phillips has uh, one gun firing 7.62 and one gun firing a 5.56. Five, and this is the uh, this is just an AR-15. This is the big scary, what is attempted to be painted as the big scary black gun that everybody that doesn't know anything about guns uses to try to get people to go anti-gun. Yep. Now... With this Bushmaster, it has been heavily, Emil has heavily modified it into a selective fire weapon, firing from 100 round, what they call beta magazines. Now, a beta magazine is a drum mag, uh, and a drum mag looks like a, uh, it's it's a dual drum mag. How would you, to people that don't know guns, how would you describe a beta mag? Uh, Imagine if a, if a rifle where, you know, usually you see that, like, long banana clip where you normally see that. Yes. If a rifle had testicles, big, giant That's what it looks testicles. like. A yeah, set of nuts it, hanging off the gun. And a drum yeah. mag is scary enough, just your standard drum mag, because, mm-hmm. you know, you're holding a whole lot of rounds in that. This is a beta drum mag. So it's two drums attached to one that feed into one single feeding mechanism. Yeah. So the way to visualize this would be if you've ever in the movies ever seen like the guy shooting the gun and there's like a ribbon of bullets coming out of the side of the gun, right? If you were to take that ribbon and wrap it around your hand and put a hundred bullets or a hundred rounds around your hand and then put it into like a oversized tuna can and then give it away to feed those bullets out and then click it into the bottom of the gun. That's what we're talking. But two of those. <laughs> yes, two of them. 
And and essentially, for the listener, what this does is allows Emil to fire a ridiculous amount of rounds without ever having to reload. Mm-hmm. 200, right? Yeah. Well, and with selective fire, so he took a gun that was semi-automatic, one bullet per trigger pull, and he changed it so it could do burst mode or fully automatic burst mode, meaning like da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. Yes, just with the flick of a thumb. Yeah. So you can choose what rate you want your weapon to fire at. That's what the the, the modified selective fire means. Yes. Uh, and it's weird that they had 100-round drum mags because those are illegal in California. So I don't know what these criminals were doing with them, honestly. That's so weird. So weird. The gall. Now, here's what the... <laughs> and that's probably a can of worms we don't want to crack into right now. But this is what the police had up. A standard issue Beretta 92F. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Which is a 9 millimeter, Optimum range of about 30 meters. And that's a handgun. <laughs> yeah, and with an AK-47, you can you can hit targets of 600 meters. Yeah. <laughs> so what the cops have gotten into, gotten themselves into, is imagine bringing a slingshot to a 50 cal fight. That's, that's say, <laughs> a slingshot to a tank battle. <laughs> yeah, and also, by the way, the guys with the bigger guns are heavily armored. <laughs> tanks. They were tanks. So even if they were hitting them from, you know, 20 meters, it wouldn't have mattered because of their armor. But they're trying to hit them at, you know, between 100 and 200 meters. And a, and a round loses its velocity over over distance. Oh, have you ever tried to hit a target with a handgun at 100 yards? Oh, forget about it. It's so impossible. It's hard. It's hard. Just throw rocks. Yeah, you Just throw rocks. Well. Yeah, that is what we would call irresponsible shooting. If you're trying to hit a target at 100 yards with a handgun, just stop it. You're gonna hurt something else. Everything now, maybe else. if you have 300 cops shooting at the same target, <laughs> yeah. But you're also gonna kill everyone inside the bank and the neighborhood behind you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh gosh. So at 9:24 a.m., Larry Phillips busts into the ATM lobby of the bank which is kind of like the breezeway, right? And I don't know why buildings have this this little... I've never understood their purpose. I do know that one time I was paid by Pizza Hut to chase a squirrel out of one of these breezeways when I was a teenager. <laughs> Wait, Pizza Hut paid you to chase a squirrel out of a breezeway? Yeah, they gave me 20 bucks because there was a squirrel <laughs> harassing patrons in the breezeway and it had just hunkered into the corner and was fucking with people. And they were scared, so I got the squirrel out of the, out of there like some kind of inbred Steve Irwin. Why was why was Pizza Hut engaging you to? Why were they interested, invested in in having you clear a squirrel from a bank breezeway? I guess it was no, not a bank. It was a Pizza Hut. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were saying that it wasn't a bank. The Pizza Hut was like there was a squirrel. <laughs> That bank there. I just Let's... chased it out, but they couldn't. They were afraid of it. Okay, and it okay. was just a squirrel to me, which is just a a tree rat. <laughs> right? Right. And they gave me 20 bucks to get the squirrel out of the breezeway. Dang. Because they were losing what? customers. Yeah, they should have paid you in pizza. I may have got free pizza out of the deal, too. I don't remember. I was like 16. So Larry busts into this, this breezeway, the ATM lobby of the bank, and just starts blasting... Officer Dean Haynes 
and Officer Martin Whitfield's cruisers with 762. Now, he also starts firing at all police and civilians that he sees. So he's just anything that has a sign of life, he's trying to kill it. It doesn't matter if it's wearing a uniform or not. He starts shooting at everybody and everything with primary focus on police cruisers. Now, in this initial barrage, here are the injuries. So this is barrage one. Sergeant Larry Haynes, who was 41 years old at the time, is struck in the shoulder by bullet fragments. Officer Martin Whitfield, which we will unfortunately cover again here in a minute because this guy probably had it the worst out of anybody here. Officer Martin Whitfield, who was 29 years old at the time, is hit by shrapnel and flying glass. So these are his first set of injuries, right? Michael Horan, who was a a civilian hunkered behind a police cruiser, was shot in the left side six times with 7.62. Oh, my gosh. Took six rounds to the guts of 7.62. Tracy Fisher, also a civilian, hunkered beside Michael Horan, is shot in the foot by 7.62, and it pretty much completely obliterates her foot. I was going to say, that, imagine hit, getting hit with a with a Crayola marker going at you know seven hundred miles an hour. Yeah, the, that yeah. that's the size. A steel centered Crayola marker. Crayola marker. <laughs> you know, just the, the damage that's going to. Jeez. Barry Golding, also a civilian, catches bullet fragments in both hands and legs. Now, like I mentioned before, LAPD helicopters are already on the scene. And Phillips starts shooting at them, too. Wow. <laughs> Which sounds funny, but honestly, man, with seven, if they're flying low enough and you've, you, you're, you've got 7.62 oh, with you AP could, rounds, yeah. you could bring down a helicopter. You could. Good. Uh, at this point, uh, the LAPD helicopters and the news helicopters kind of nope the fuck out, and they, they start flying higher, kind of out of their range. Oh, this is when police call for SWAT. But it would unfortunately be a hot minute before they could get there because of traffic and this is one of the funniest <laughs> like the biggest shootout in Hollywood history and it's like all hell is breaking it's like Vietnam in the middle of North Hollywood right and SWAT is just sitting in traffic calmly listening to music it's like the, <laughs> the juxtaposition here between the two situations right it's like oh we need backup and then the if you want to be my lover, you got to get with my friends. And they're just sitting there. <laughs> oh, fucking hate traffic. And the reason I use the song, if you want to be my lover, you got to get with my friends. Something, something, that's the way it is. You, know, you remember that song? Can I tell you just one quick story about that song? Yes. Just really quick. I was engaged to a girl before I was married the first time. Uh, this is one of those situations where uh, I didn't know. Like literally, she was she was crazy. Um, I also it was very sad because I think she had had some trauma uh, in her past that she hadn't dealt with. Uh, textbook signs of that, like, you know, if I ever tried to, like, hug her around the waist, she'd, like, flip out, you know. Weird stuff. But I didn't, you know, I'm a kid. I didn't know. Yeah. So we got engaged. Uh, and She, she wet the was... bed every time you guys slept together. 
<laughs> we never slept together. Oh. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, we didn't, before, when you were engaged, didn't you sleep, if you did sleep near each other, you slept in those zip-up sacks that you tie around your neck, you know, the zip-up. Oh, to prevent you from touching each other. Yeah, did you, yeah, those ones, you got, They you don't stop those? you from touching yourself, though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, mine did because they had the straps where it strapped your hands to the wrist to the side of the sack. So yeah. hmm. it was very effective. Weird. A- yeah, weird. Anyway, or not weird. Very common, actually, as I, <laughs> as I see it. Um, but anyway, so she she was a professional clogger. Do you know what that is? Somehow I knew that. <laughs> uh, I don't. You didn't have to. T- I knew that already. And I just remember sitting in this like dance room, and this was like one of her number one number one hits was clogging to this song with the, uh, her crew, and they would like go all around the fairs and stuff, clogging and doing this to this song. And at the hold time, up a minute. Was, hold up a minute, off. Sorry, yeah. So this this. Abused girl yeah. is clogging to "If You Want to Be My Lover" by by the Spice Girls. <laughs> this you're describing. This sounds like a scene from a from a Rob Zombie movie. <laughs> this is unexpectedly extremely disturbing. Also, yeah, I had to travel to her parents' house in the literal middle of nowhere. Like I cornfield, cornfields everywhere. <laughs> And then there's their house, their big square house, like, you know, like from uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Were you dating and- Jenny from Forrest Gump? <laughs> <laughs> At any point, did she hunker down with you in this cornfield and go, please, God, please make me a bird so I can fly far, far, far away from here? <laughs> I'm going to clog on bigger stages. <laughs> So, yeah, I know the song. <laughs> well, the reason I'm disturbed right now and I want to stop recording. Um, <laughs> the reason I chose If You Want to Be My Lover by the Spice Girls is because this was the number one song on the music charts at the moment of, of the North Hollywood shootout. Awesome. <laughs> so there's a very high. I know I made this situation up where they're listening to this, but I mean, this could have happened. Oh, it most likely happened because that song was played in rotation. Just like, remember when uh, MC Hammer came out with Can't Touch This? And, like, there were radio stations that played it. They're like, today's the Can't Touch This Day. And they played it over and over, like, the whole day. I think this song got that kind of rotation, too. And I love Can't Touch This. Yeah. Be funny if that's what your girl was clogging to. (laughs) (laughs) It's basically... Can't touch this is the uh, the anthem of my youth. <laughs> because of the, the sacks that you slept in. Partially. I can't was... even touch this. <laughs> <laughs> it was part of the it was part of the whole routine, yes. <laughs> so back in so they're listening to Spice Girls, you know, stuck in traffic, SWAT is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Phillips back Larry Phillips back at the bank is still firing randomly. And a, a rookie officer by the names of by the name of James Zaboravan, his name comes up a lot. This guy is a superhero. Um, 
A lot of hero cops on this day, a lot of brave men. Um, but James Zaboravan really kind of distinguished himself. Like I said, he's a rookie. Fresh out of cop school, and that's what it's called. It's called cop school. Cop school. Yeah. <laughs> that might not be what it's called. That'd be awesome. More people would go if it was. Uh, but he's a rookie. Now, in the shopping center across the road from the bank, there's a, a kiosk that makes keys. And if you get on Google Google Maps, I spend a lot of time on Google Maps in front of this bank going up and down the neighborhoods. If you get on Google Maps, that that mass, that key-making kiosk, still there to this day. Really? It is still there. Yeah. Uh, and it's and it's uh, just in the, sitting in the center of this parking lot. Um, it's just a perfect – it looks like a, a little storage shed, honestly. And it's just there to, to make house keys, car keys, uh, what have you. But it is good cover. Uh, I, I, it's more concealment than cover because they're using 762, right? Yeah. I was going to say. But it's concealment at least. It's something. When, and, it's, uh, when it's a kiosk that makes keys, is it just an OSC? <laughs> I, I guess I guess so. Like yeah. Brazil nuts in Brazil, they're just nuts, right? <laughs> That's mm. a good point. I hadn't thought about the, you, you you're probably you're probably right there. Yeah. Regardless James Zaboravan is hunkers behind this this Osk. Okay. With two other detectives. Now, James Zaboravan is wearing body armor. These two detectives aren't. James Zaboravan also has, not only does he have his 9mm, he is the only officer on the scene that has a separate weapon, and that weapon is an Ithaca Model 37 pump-action 12-gauge shotgun. Okay, and at any kind of uh, still not effective at long distances. I was say. <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna feel like it's raining slightly at at any kind of distance. <laughs> well, uh, Zaboravan is gonna find this out the hard way because he's gonna lean out from behind this ca- kiosk, osk, this osk, and he's gonna pump a few rounds in Larry Phillips' direction uh, while he's he, he kind of gets him from the flank from his left flank while he's firing uh, down the right side of the street. And uh, eight of these pellets do find their way to Phillips. Huh. Unfortunately, seven of those pellets are stopped by his very well-made armor. And uh, so out of all these rounds, out of all these pellets that are fired from this Ithaca 12-gauge, one pellet uh, embeds itself in the fat of his big, juicy fucking ass. Oh, and it probably doesn't do much damage because, like we said, this guy is super into bodybuilding and he does a lot of squats. Now, you're probably thinking, if you're not familiar with guns, wow, he just got shot with a shotgun. No, this is a pellet. One out of a, out of a thousand pellets, um, this is a, a minor flesh wound. Yeah, because a shotgun shoots, well, one type of shotgun round, it just shoots bunches of little tiny BBs out. That's, yes. That's, yes. That's what makes them significant at, at short range. And then also you have to take into account adrenaline. Right? Uh huh. Yeah. Adrenaline. And then on top of that, the fact that they took the phenobarbital beforehand. Right. All that this does is staggers Phillips for a moment, just a split second. He's just like, oh, something jumped up and bit me. <laughs> all of Then the- he, he turns. <laughs> do what? I was going to say, all of the Forrest Gumps and the, all of it is happening in this one. This wasn't even planned either. This is something that came up on the spot, the Forrest Gump references. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Philip staggers for just a second, pivots, 
facing Zaborovan. Zaborovan said that they made eye contact. Oh my! For gosh. a brief moment, and that had to be scary because Phillips instantly raises that that AK and just starts showering the co- the kiosk the osk in seven six two, an armor piercing seven six two. If you've ever played Call of Duty, the fear that this guy had was when there's a juggernaut after you. Yes, looking you in the eyes. It's impossible to stop it. It's just going to happen. You just run. You run and run. (laughs) (laughs) So what Zaborovan does is dives back behind the Osk. And uh, but this is what this is what kind of made this guy a hero. Um, he quickly realizes that he's wearing body armor, and the two detectives that are now laying on the ground aren't. Yeah. So he jumps on top of these two detectives and tries to shield them with his body. Now, because of because of James Zaborovan's actions here, these two detectives never get caught. They don't don't they don't catch a single round. Unfortunately, James Zaborovan gets shot a total of four times. He catches two rounds, two seven six two rounds to the back. And also takes one round in the hip and one into the thigh. Jeez. And saved those, probably saved those two detectives' lives because they didn't have any armor on. Man. So this is going through the armor that he has on. I mean, two of the rounds went through the armor. Yes. Like butter. Ripped through it like butter. Once again, this armor that the cops is wearing, cops are wearing, is designed to stop nine mil, you know, 45, kind of. Yeah. Not, not stuff like this. Not war, not wartime ammunition. No, no. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Zaborovan, badly injured, crawls to the strip mall and and finds that was across the street and finds a dentist and his wife and they start tending to his wounds. This is a bad man. Yeah, this is bad. This is a tough son of a bitch. And he's a rookie. It was like his second week on the force. Which is why he probably had the armor, because like with any new, you know, new job where you're super excited, you come with all the toys, right? You, he's got everything. All these seasoned vets are like, I've never used that armor. I'm not going to keep carrying it around. I'm never going to wear it. So they, you know, they leave it at home. Yeah, this kid's like, I've got my armor and my shotgun, and <laughs> yeah, he's Funny. wearing his combat diaper with his briefs. <laughs> yeah, he's super excited. He's still, it's all new to him, right? It's yeah. still exciting. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, Larry Phillips is still popping in and out of the ATM lobby, firing, shooting arounds. Eventually, he gets to the point where he doesn't even go back into the ATM. He's just standing in the open, out in the open, just fucking the LAPD up. Uh. Because their rounds aren't doing anything. They're bouncing off of them, the ones that do find them. Most of them are missing because they're firing from such a long distance. Yeah. Phillips and Emil. So Emil eventually joins Phillips outside and uh, and Emil is carrying the duffel bag full of money. It's at this point that they use, I mean, honestly, fairly impressive uh, cover and manure firing techniques uh, during this portion to mess the police department up. So they're just, it seems kind of like having fun, but it is, it is apparent that they've practiced. Mm-hmm. Um, Officer Stuart Guy, at this point, while they're toying with the LAPD, is shot in the right arm and the right leg. While crouched behind a vehicle, and uh, after Guy is hit, they exit the bank and start making their way towards their their vehicle, their their white celebrity, um, covering each other while they're firing. So, uh, neither one of them were in the military, but they they do ha- have techniques that are very military esque. 
uh, fire techniques that are pretty advanced. All that falls apart here pretty quickly. So they're, they're trying to make their way to the vehicle. While they're making their way to the vehicle, Detective Tracy Angelus is shot in the left thigh. And Officer Whitfield, who, remember I told you, was hit in the initial barrage. Yes. Is trying to trying to make an egress. He's trying to get help. They, they see Officer Whitfield again trying to make a run for it. They start firing in his direction. He, he tries to whip around a palm tree. And you know how when you've, you've got a lot of forward momentum, he wraps his arm around it trying to get behind it, but you kind of come out the other side yeah. on the other end a little bit? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At that point, when Officer Whitfield pokes out the other side trying to get behind this tree, he catches another 7.62 round to the femur of his left leg. Oh. And it's a dead shot to the femur. And it just rips his femur to shreds. Jeez. Now, your femur is a pretty substantial bone. The bone in your leg. Yeah. <laughs> the bone in your upper the leg. Um, you've mentioned a word a couple of times, egress. So you've got ingress and egress, right? Ingress is get in. Egress is get out, right? Yes. Yes. Um, and But this is going to be his... Uh, not not going to be his concern because just a second, a quarter second after catching the round uh, to his femur that completely obliterated his femur, he catches another round to the chest. Oh, jeez. Officer Whitfield is riddled with bullets and, and shrapnel, bullet fragments. At this point, he lays down behind the tree and uh, he just waits to die. Now, the sad part of this is his wife is at home listening on a police radio the entire time and can hear her husband uh, very calmly losing unconsciousness and asking for help. Uh, The good news is Officer Whitfield does survive somehow. He was hospitalized for many months and required many surgeries. Right after he healed, he left the police department. (laughs) And I don't blame him one bit. That would be enough like, okay, guys, I think I'm good. I've I've had enough of this. He did private security for for many, many years. And now, Officer Whitfield uh, is operating a seafood restaurant in Indianapolis, Indiana, called Sea Kings. So if you're in the Indianapolis area, there's a seafood restaurant called Sea Kings, uh, ran by this police officer that we're talking about. And that has great reviews on Yelp. Apparently, it's good seafood. Anyways, back to SWAT. They're still stuck in traffic. It's at this point that Detective Earl Valadares was hit in the head by flying debris and very seriously wounded. But our two uh, bandits, uh, they do make it to their car. Phillips throws the duffel bag full of money and his empty ammo belt in, retrieves more ammo in the form of the drums. He then lays down cover fire for, for a meal behind the car. And at this point, Emil makes his run for the vehicle. While Emil is making his way towards the car, he gets grazed by a bullet just below his right eyebrow. And you're thinking, wow, that's a headshot, but it literally just grazed him. Mm. Okay, just nicked his skin. Yeah, and you can see this injury in one picture whenever they've got him on the ground uh, subdued. Um, It's not a very... You wouldn't even have to go to the hospital if you got this injury while you were out. Uh, mowing your lawn. He dropped for a for a minute to his knees, just a brief moment, and then stood back up and get, and began moving again. When Emil gets to the car, Phillips stays outside firing away 
and Emil climbs inside. It's at this point that they've made it to the car that the armored car with SWAT finally arrives and they're carrying officers Don Anderson, Steve Gomez, Peter Weriter, and Richard Masson. Now, these are all SWAT SWAT cops. The difference in SWAT, just so that the listener knows, they probably know this, but they do have uh, semi-automatic rifles and they're, they're armored. Yes. They're also trained in advanced techniques. To ingress and egress. Yes. Now, Emil starts driving the vehicle. They see SWAT's here. They don't want none of that. Emil's inside driving. Phillips is outside walking, covering fire. I, you know, I've watched this this aerial footage a million times up. I don't still really know what their plan was because Emil is driving. The trunk is open so that Phillips can retrieve ammunition and switch out guns if he wants to. But I don't know that they had a plan. I, I think that everything went to shit. While they were in the lobby, yeah. Well, and I would even say like there, there's a, there's a, a, um, there's a map that's that has been illustrated of of the bank and its location and where everything kind of took place. And I would say you know, the bank was a poor target. Like, like just oh yeah, get, tactically, tactically getting away from this place. You got one so road, unlocked everything. Yeah, it's not smart. You got alleyways everywhere, but th- those alleyways are all really tight and congested. It's yeah, it's ta- like it's just not not a f- not a smart target. So what they're doing is they're they're trying to exit out the side parking lot into the residential neighborhood. That's where they're 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 headed towards. So like I said. Emil is driving this celebrity, this white spray-painted white celebrity, with the trunk open while Phillips walks beside it on foot. They're driving very slowly, and Phillips is still engaging police officers. I just... I don't know, man. I, I've, watched the, I've watched the footage a million times. I, I don't know what the plan was. I, I or if they even had one. I agree with you. I don't think there was. Yeah. I think at, at the point where you're still shooting at uh, police officers during their getaway, I don't know. I mean, just focus on the getaway, maybe. Don't, you know, it seemed more aggressive. The whole thing. I mean, armor and all that. It it seemed it, like if, if Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris were to rob a bank, this is how they would have done it, you know? Yes. Yes, the Columbine boys. If they had, if they had tried, it's just like over the top. It seems and just, you know, excessive. I would pay a substantial amount of money to be able to hear the conversations between these two at this at this at these moments because it almost seems like I get the impression that Larry Phillips has already given up. Not given up in the aspect that he's going to lay down his guns, but mm-hmm. given up in the aspect of any kind of escape. I think that all he, all Larry Phillips is doing, the one walking beside the vehicle, the smaller goon, is he's going to kill as many as these cops as he can yeah. before he goes down. Yeah. And I think that's why he doesn't get inside the vehicle. Emil, I believe, still has hope. That's, that's what I believe. Now, before SWAT uh, is concerned about taking these two down the number one priority is getting the injured officers and civilians out of the the danger area um so they they take the armored vehicle and they start uh evacing um these these many 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 
wounded officers, severely wounded officers, and severely wounded civilians. Uh, there's there's radio, and and we could in, in, input all of the 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 radio chatta chatta, chatter chatter, as as you would say. Uh, but it's there's so much of it, and it sounds a, about like. But there is one interesting part where you can hear uh, one officer say, "If someone has a shot, take it." And then uh, another cop says, "This guy's not going." These are all quotes. Another officer over the radio says, "This guy's not going down. He's got heavy body armor." And then there's a chilling moment that I well, it's chilling probably for the officer saying it, but he says, "You just hear the radio click," and he goes, "Go for the head." Mm. So this has turned into a zombie movie. Shoot for the head. Aim for the head. We're no longer trying to incapacitate. Kill these pieces of shit. Uh, also, also that that freaks me out. I mean, it doesn't freak me out. I mean, I get it. They've got to try to take the guy down, right? Absolutely. The head is such a small target and at distance with, with you know, whatever. Unless it's a sniper... Every miss is putting a bullet in a neighborhood, a residential downrange in a neighbor. Yeah, I mean, because those those bullets they can travel four hundred yards, five hundred yards, six hundred yards. You know, and it's just at head level, just put shooting parallel with the road. There's no like, it's not going to ditch itself into the road because you're aiming down. You know, it, it, that's amazing. That's I mean, I get it, I get it, but that's a lot of rounds downrange. Beyond the target, that probably because uh, mm. so uh, we're at a point now where Emil and Larry have have got out of the parking lot. They're onto the street that runs down into the residential neighborhood. Um, Larry at this point runs forward and takes a position behind a parked tractor trailer to cover fire for Emil, who is still driving the white Chevy car. Um, and and this is a pretty pivotal moment in this shootout because this is the moment where the two split up. Emil keeps driving past the trailer and does, never stops to pick up Larry, and Larry stays back and fights without any kind of argument whatsoever. This is one of the reasons that it leads me to believe that Larry is like, I want to die here, and Emil still has hope. Yeah, yeah. Because there wasn't like any kind of... Um, moment in larry phillips where he's like where are you going you're leaving me right you, you know what i mean yeah this is the point where when when the call is sent up to lapd police officers to back off leave them alone let swat take care of it let, let these you're doing more harm than good unfortunately for the reason that you stated you know you've got nine mils they've got seven six two you're not going to be able to do anything. Let SWAT, who has semi-automatic rifles, five five six, let them let them handle this. And a and a scope, so they can and the scope, yes. take an accurate shot. You know, at this point, SWAT begins engaging the two men, and Larry Phillips, while hunkered behind the 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 tractor trailer, takes two bullets, two five five six rounds, almost instantaneously, within inches of each other. Now, the first round. Hits him from behind in his right shoulder, goes through his trapezius muscle, or your, you know, your traps. Your <laughs> traps muscles are the, the big shoulder bumps. Yeah. Those juicy shoulder lumps. Yes. Mm hmm. Uh, the second one comes from the front and broke his right collarbone and then ruptured his right subclavian artery. I had to do a lot of, um, internal looking 
research during this episode. I wanted to learn about the subclavian artery. Um, it's a large artery that connects directly to the top front side of the heart and essentially runs from your heart to the right side and then feeds a lot of the blood to your body. So it's a major artery, right? Yeah. And then it, so it nips this subclavian artery. It is an injury that had he stayed alive for longer than 30 minutes would have killed him within 30 minutes. I was going to say, you get that one well enough, that's the um, the Monty Python, Holy Grail kind of bleeding, you know, where it's like, yeah. tss, 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 I'm fine. <laughs> it's just a flesh wound. It's a very, very serious injury. It is. Uh, this bullet, the same round, also fractures his shoulder blade before coming to a stop in his back muscles. Uh, and like I said, the second round would have been fatal within 30 minutes. Yeah. So now... His front, now his right collarbone is broken, his right subclavian artery is ruptured, and his right shoulder blade is is shattered. So this right arm is in a lot of pain. So he's badly injured. Simultaneously, almost, whenever he catches these two rounds, he comes around to the side of the of the tractor trailer between a wall that ran perpendicular, or I'm sorry, ran parallel with the sidewalk. And the tractor trailer. So he kind of has cover mm-hmm, to his mm-hmm. flanks, to his left and right flanks. And his only danger areas are to his front and to his back, right? Yeah. And it's at this point while firing the AK-47 that he gets what is called a stovepipe jam. Pretty common uh, malfunction with an AK-47. And the uh, the cure to a stove. So what happens in a stovepipe jam is uh, when the brass, the spent cartridge... Um, for, for people who aren't up to date on gun knowledge, and that's fine, uh, the, the projectile exits the cartridge, and and then the, the cartridge is ejected from the weapon, and, and that's called a spent casing, right? That's what you see on the ground after a gunfight. When you hear the ching, 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 ching in the Matrix movies, those are all the, the empty casings hitting the ground. Yes, so what happens in a stovepipe jam in an AK-47 is because this has been converted to fully automatic and because the, the bolt and the mechanisms are moving so fast, occasionally a spent cartridge, the face of the bolt will, will catch the cartridge before it's ejected from the, from the receiver. And they call it a stovepipe jam because it looks like a stovepipe. You just have a, a spent cartridge sticking out of the side or the top, depending on what kind of weapon it is, of the weapon. I see. And it causes a jam. Now, the, to render, to, to fix this jam, it's relatively simple. You just reach up and flick it with your thumb, right? Hmm. You flick it out, and then you're back back in the battle. But because of his injuries, and likely because of the mental fog from the uh, the, the drugs that they had taken prior and the adrenaline he, he kind of says, fuck it, and throws the, the AK down on the ground. And there are pictures of this AK laying on the ground with the stovepipe jam still in the weapon. Hmm. This is when Phillips resorts to his sidearm, the 9mm Beretta, and begins firing at officers for his very last stand. He's walking down the street like a madman, holding this 9mm up, just firing randomly at whoever he can see. It's pretty... Uh, it's a last stand, and it's it's good to see what happens next because Phillips is eventually hit in the right hand with a 9mm round. Some cops are still firing on him. This causes him to drop the Beretta. It's, it's kind of it's over for Phillips because at this point, he reaches down, 
picks up the Beretta, steps up against the wall, running up uh, parallel with the sidewalk, places the Beretta under his chin, and pulls the trigger and blows his brains out on national television. Almost instantaneously, while this bullet goes through the top of his head, a sniper round comes in and severs his spine. Really? Yeah, so he gets a double whammy, and Larry Phillips is now deceased and out of the picture. And this footage is still on YouTube. You can watch Larry Phillips kill himself. It's not graphic. It's not graphic in the least bit. You don't have to be like, well, that'll scar me. You'll be able to sleep because it's aerial footage. Um, You don't even see any blood. But uh, this is all on YouTube. Yeah, I just Googled it. I'll watch that later. Like I said, Larry Phillips is now dead. Meanwhile, Emil is still making his way downtown. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It comes in so handy. Yeah. Uh, He's still going down the street. And the name of the street is Archwood Street. And this riddled Chevrolet Chevrolet celebrity, which is chock full of bullet holes and running like absolute shit. God knows how many rounds this little Chevy has taken. It's amazing that it's still running. It has two flat tires. The windshield is a spider-webbed mess. It looks like Swiss cheese. But Emil knows that if he has any chance of survival or escaping whatsoever, he needs a new set of wheels. So what he starts doing is swerving to, for some reason, civilians are still making their way into the danger zone here. Stupid. Um, and there's, So he starts swerving to hit civilian vehicles and trying to get them to stop. Eventually, he meets a 1963 Jeep Cherokee pickup truck driven by an aerospace engineer by the name of Bill Maher, who was on his way to work. This is a really cool truck. Have you ever seen a 63 Jeep Cherokee pickup truck? Uh, they kind of look like those internationals, don't they? I love this thing. I, I, I'm actually, I'm gonna. I think that that's going to be one of my bucket list things is to find one of these and and restore it. I love this truck. It looks so wild. It kind of reminds me of the truck that uh, Earl drives and trimmers. Okay, yeah, yeah. And that may have even been what Earl drives and trimmers. I can't remember, but uh, it's a really cool looking truck. So he stops in front of the 63 Jeep Cherokee pickup truck driven by Bill Maher. And uh, Bill kind of sits there. They're looking at each other for a minute, kind of, you know, face-to-face in their in their own vehicles. And this is when Emil raises his weapon and starts firing through his own windshield into the windshield of Bill Maher. And uh, Maher is hit in the shoulder, the head, and also catches around across the bridge of his nose. However... Uh, none of these, I think the, the round to his head, they never got specific. Uh, I assume it was a grazing round. Um, he does catch a, a round directly to his shoulder. He's badly injured. He jumps out. He says, to hell with this, and uh, and leaves the truck, leaves the truck there. Imagine trying to call in work after that, and <laughs> your work isn't going to. No, you don't understand. I was uh, I was in the middle of the North Hollywood shootout and I got shot three times. Whatever, Bill, you're fired. After Bill uh, runs away from the truck, Emil pulls the white celebrity up to the truck. So they're door to door at this point. Opens both of the doors, so he opens the door to the vehicle, to the car, and the door to the truck, and uh, starts offloading the the goods from the Chevy celebrity into this truck. So the duffel bag, his ammunition, his weapons. After he gets the, these items transferred, he hops in 
goes to start it up and discovers that our aerospace engineer, Bill Maher, is a smart old man because he had previously installed a kill switch on the 63 Jeep. <laughs> and he had, he had flipped that kill switch before he jumped out. Uh-huh. Now, uh, a kill switch for the listener is is just a simple switch that can be ran into your vehicle. You just it's simple. You just turn it off and on. If the if the switch is in the off position, that vehicle will not start. He had flipped it into the off position, probably to, to deter criminals, thieves. This is Los Angeles. Probably a lot of that going on. And a cool truck to boot. So yeah, yeah, it's a cool truck. Um, and and obviously a mill in this high adrenaline confused state because of the phenobarbital and everything he doesn't think oh there's probably a kill switch yeah this truck just won't start for some reason (laughs) while he's fiddling with the keys trying to figure out what's going on here the SWAT team pulls up in a police cruiser so four SWAT SWAT police officers they come hauling ass Dukes of Hazzard style up in front of the jeep the nose of the cruiser stops inches from the nose of the truck. So they are toe-to-toe now. This is the closest uh, any of them have been to one of these goons. The four SWAT officers jump out of the cruiser, circle around to the back for cover, while Emil jumps out of the truck, out of the Jeep, and goes around to the front of his white Chevy celebrity. And now we're in the old Mexican standoff. That <laughs> Emil starts firing blindly through the vehicles. The SWAT officers start doing the same. They exchange a lot of rounds for two and a half minutes. Uh, at one point, Officer Don Anderson realized uh, he, he, he's out of ammunition. He, he he kneels down, takes a knee behind the vehicle to uh, to switch mags, and looks and 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 realizes, hey, there's a space between the vehicles, the undercarriage and the road. At this point, he lays on his stomach to try to get a view, and notices that he mills ankles and feet, and and a few spots on his calves are not armored. This is his Achilles heel, so to speak. But I'm pumped. <laughs> so what the what SWAT begins doing then? They all lay down on their stomach and just start fucking pumping Emil's <laughs> legs, ankles, and feet full of five, five, six rounds. He catches a total of twenty rounds to his ankles, feet, and legs. Jeez. They they make mince meat out of his knees from his knees down. His legs just get smoked. Well, and then you think about it. Like, he's going to fall down at some point, so there's more of his body than at ground level, right? So they... (laughs) Jeez. Yes. (laughs) Uh. And at this point, Emil drops to the ground, drops his weapon, and is immediately swarmed by SWAT. Um, Emil has tapped out. He's given up. When SWAT get to him, a police officer uh, rips his mask off and goes... What's your name? I imagine they sounded like that. <laughs> and Emil lies and goes, Pete. Pete. You'd think after doing everything they did that they'd want the credit right away. Well, the SWAT officer goes, Okay, Pete. How many other guys are we looking for? How many are there? And Emil, a.k.a. Pete, responds, 
fuck you. Shoot me in the head. He sounded like Mr. Bill. In my head, he did, because he's such a big, large, massive man. The standoff is officially over up. At 10.01 a.m., Emil lays there on the road and dies of blood loss. Now, his la- his family will later try to sue the LAPD for letting him lay there and die of blood loss because the ambulance to get to him was stopped, but this is standard procedure because of the cordon that they had established on the area. They hadn't cleared the area yet. The ambulance couldn't get in. Yeah. So fuck Emil's family. That's not common knowledge either that uh, if you're a criminal and you've caused enough of a scene and the police can't secure the area, they don't let medical in. No. So if you're the family of a criminal and they're like, why did you delay my son's help? No, your son delayed his help. <laughs> your son created the situation. Yeah. So fuck you and fuck him. Let him lay there and bleed out. That's what I say. I'll bet you to this day they're still complaining about that. Police brutality? Oh, but, well, yeah. the the family, they're probably like, we were done wrong. Yeah, we were, they were wronged. They were wronged, yeah. Exactly. Emil should have gotten his dang in court. <laughs> so, the North Hollywood shootout is officially over. It, it is over. Woo. By the time it was all said and done... A total of six bystanders and 11 police officers were wounded by gunfire. Miraculously, the only deaths in the North Hollywood shootout would be the deaths of Emil Mazzarano and Larry Phillips. After all that noise, all those high-powered rounds, and all those bullets, they still couldn't kill anybody. (laughs) Well, And that was the case of Killdozer, too, right? I mean, nobody died except for him. Uh, The difference here, though... There's a big difference. This is this is very important. Marvin Hemeyer had no desire to kill anybody. That's true. It was about property damage for him. Yes, that that's a good point. By the time it was all said and done, a total of 1,200 rounds had been fired from Emil and Larry, and 700 rounds had been fired from cops. So right at 2,000 rounds in a residential neighborhood. <laughs> I'll bet you money if you went to that location and metal detected, I'll bet you could still pick out a a, a round, a bullet from the ground somewhere. Oh, you know. absolutely. Dang. And I would also say that there's probably still bullet holes all over that neighborhood that haven't been patched. Yeah. It's like in the mall across the street. <laughs> it looks like downtown Beirut. <laughs> For a brief moment. This small street in North Hollywood in a residential neighborhood turned into Iraq in yeah. 2002. <laughs> like, <laughs> now, whenever police, like I said, uh, Larry and Emil are both now dead. Um, in, the, in the investigation afterwards, um, they will find a lot of evidence in their apartment. But one thing that they do find is the movie Heat in their VCR starring Robert De Niro. They think that this has something to do i don't understand the connection um i've never seen the movie i did watch some clips of it on youtube just doesn't seem like something i would be interested in watching um but they they felt that was noteworthy i hate honestly i hate that i hate that when you know a tragedy has happened and then they try to collect it but and their playlist was all alanis morissette songs well they did this with the columbine yeah the doom video game Oh, I, I didn't even mention that the heat is is about a bank heist. 
That's, oh. that's what it's about. Okay, so uh, there's a smoking gun. <laughs> and also, there's a lot of similarities in the way they handled this situation and, and the scene in Heat, so there might be something there. But I think a lot of times we're grasping for straws when we try to blame uh, these tragedies or these crimes on one particular form of media or entertainment. Here, here's the thing. I think if, if, if any form of media or entertainment ever comes across as just a 100% clear playbook on how to commit a crime, it it, st- it stops before it's distributed. You know, and the, I, I, I can't think, I can't even think off the top of my head of a movie that goes, that, that shows play by play all the steps in some of the heavier drug use. Like they always pull something out to make yes. it legal, you know? Yes. So it doesn't seem like that we, you know, come on. It, okay. Yeah. So what? There was a bank heist movie. They, they're excited about their stupid bank heist. These guys are like 12 year olds, you know, super, super excited. Like, well, let's watch a bank heist movie while we're prepping all, while we're stitching all this armor together. I mean, aside from the fact that this did kind of change the 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 carry for the LAD police officers afterwards, they they were issued uh, AR-15 rifles afterwards. Mm. Um, that's all that I've got. Uh, that's it. That's that's the North Hollywood shootout. I hope we. I know this has been a long episode for the listener, but I hope we did this justice because I tried to I tried to get everything in here best best I could. Well, this was very eye-opening. I think also, in addition to the carry, I would say that this type of thing informed cities on what is possible by a criminal. And so this probably enforced or, or, or promoted or motivated the, the establishment or the, you know, the buildup of SWAT teams in these cities, you know, in cities around the nation. Yeah, it's important to also note that none of the weapons that that Emil or Larry owned were legally owned. Yeah, right. All of them were illegally owned. And, uh, I mean, we don't have to say much more. I think we understand. I think we have an understanding of of what I'm getting at here. (laughs) Yeah. You're never going to stop the criminal, right? Bigger mouse trap, make a bigger mouse. Well, geez, man. That's a... The, the, I will say this: there there isn't a lot of news footage out there on on crimes that is is shocking and and like just seems I don't know the footage for this gives you a different feeling like watching the the carnage that these two can inflict you know by piecing together a couple pieces of weaponry and armor and stuff it's it's humbling. To see to see what what they could do to an unprepared law enforcement, you know, it's very scary seeing two men stand in the open and just take an onslaught of nine millimeter rounds. Yeah, you and oof. not be able to, and and it not phase them. I mean, because normal armor, normal armor that a police officer would wear, if they get hit with a round, it's still. It still it hurts. Could potentially even take them out of commission. It just basically stops them from being killed. Yes, but to have these guys sitting there just patink patink patink, you know, just that that's frightening. It's frightening. That's one of the bullshit things about movies is when the the good guy he catches a round right and then he like opens his shirt. And he's like, 
I got a vest on. Yeah, let's get back in the fight. Like, no, guy, you're still unconscious. Yeah, exactly. You just got, you know, like jackbooted to the chest. It's That's not... like catching a, ra- a, a a full power punch by Brock Lesnar <laughs> to the chest or stomach. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's you're just not dead is all that means. You're just not dead, that's all. Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, this was uh, eye-opening and I think um hopefully uh the listener uh, uh forgives us for all of the tech talk on guns and stuff but that was very very important i think in this in this uh in this case well the only reason i did that is because guns are such a a big part of the story i mean it's it's very important to deviate between what the police were using and what emil and larry were using because it's important yeah for sure i agree all right well just uh you got you know you got a couple hours I'm so this this got me fired up for for whatever you're bringing next. So you got a couple hours between now and when I call you tomorrow morning. Well, before uh, before we say our goodbyes, I would like to say, uh, don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to the podcast. Do all the things, do all the things, the likes and the comments and the reviews and all that, all that jibber jabber. Yeah, we don't talk about it much, but it, it is it is very true. I mean, the only way, the biggest support we get for these is is the rating and the review. And then, if you really like, if you really like what uh, what Kent is producing here in the, in True Crime Kent, he also does a lot of work on some other episodes, other shows on Patreon. So he's he's a hard working, uh, as my grandma would say, some of it itches. Yeah, if you join Patreon, eleven fifty nine Media, you can find me and Op and Jack Luna uh, doing a show called Hugs, where we we share we, we try to keep it we try to make it a more positive show, and we also you can find uh, me and Jack Luna doing a show called Brutal, where we cover the more heinous, uh, graphic, gory, disturbing crimes with with all the rawness in there it's pretty harsh that's why it's called brutal dark calls is there dark calls dark calls with with op mm-hmm. and jack um where they they cover 911 calls that are disturbing and then you can also find early release of 911 calls with operator here and jack luna where they cover uh I wouldn't call them family friendly 911 calls but not as disturbing as the dark calls it's a family show. It definitely is a family show, I find. And then also, you can't forget the OG of 1159 Media, uh, the the piercing spearhead of this of this company, Dark Topic. You will also find Dark Topic uh, on the Patreon. So a lot of content there, a lot of fun. Jack Luna, myself, and I will also be releasing... Uh, what, what we what we call twelve o'clock shadows, which is little mini segments, little miniature podcasts, if you will, of varying things, um, just fun little stuff. A lot of lot of content there. Quite quite a bit. We're we're constantly working. Aside from that, oh, one other thing, op. One other thing, uh, Jason Vukovic. You you will find the link to his commissary. Uh, uh, we're still rallying behind Jason Vukovic. Uh, as long as I have a voice, um, I, I will I will do that. Um, hopefully, he can. We're doing everything we can to help him make parole next year. Um, so, if you want to help, you can donate to his commissary, to his to his books, to his music player, any of that, and and I will put the links to that in the show notes. Yep, 
Man, when he when he gets out, he he should he should take you to Red Lobster. I'm just gonna put it out there now. I'll take him to Red Lobster. He, he might. Yeah. I wonder what happens to their commissary money when they get when they get released. I guess they get it. Uh, they probably. I believe they do check. get it. Yes. Well, yeah. So that that could be next year. Is that right? I mean, hopefully, hopeful. Fingers crossed. We'll we'll see. All right. Well, um, I'm going to sleep better tonight knowing these two guys are off the streets. And I'll call you probably, I've got time between 6 a.m. and 6.07 uh, tomorrow, so I'll call you then. You're going to call me at 6 in the morning? Yeah, I figured. I have two. Ch- I have I have three children, two mm. of which are small and keep us up at night. You're going to call me at 6, 6 in the morning. What time do your kids usually get up? Oh, my, my, my six-year-old doesn't go to bed till till midnight. Okay. And then my... my two-year-old gets up at, at six in the morning. So you're up. Okay. Okay, I'll call you then. Hugs. Whatever, whatever man. Whatever. What?